Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. The U.S. Department of Justice reported last September that in 2013, 98,200 inmates, or approximately 51% of the federal prison population, were imprisoned for possession, trafficking, and other drug crimes. Former Attorney General Eric Holder called for reduced sentences for low-level drug offenders in federal cases, and the Obama administration says it's committed to reducing the growth of the U.S. prison population. Although prison reform appears to be a bipartisan cause, there's a large privatized prison infrastructure to be dealt with, and millions in lobbying dollars are being spent in hopes of maintaining the status quo. In a series of articles for International Business Times, Eric Markowitz explains how the current prison cottage industry works and its overall impact on our criminal justice system. I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show today. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Several industries are well known for the millions that they spend on influencing politicians in elections, oil, pharma, the gun lobby among them. But the Washington Post reported that this April that the private prisons are among the biggest lobbyists of all. Yeah, not not too much is really known about that. They're a fairly secretive industry, and they fight pretty hard to protect their interests. The two largest for-profit prison companies are GEO and Corrections Corporation of America? That's right. Those are the two huge corporations. And how many prisons do they run? Uh, they run hundreds and if not thousands. Uh, I mean, the the, the business is pretty straightforward. They build the prisons and they need to fill them. Um, another area that they're actually getting into now is, are immigrant detention centers, uh, which we're seeing in Texas, uh, where there's a lot of lobbying going around, making sure that these are filled with immigrants. So how does it work? A community invites them in to build a prison, uh, saying our prison right now is inadequate, or do they come and pitch the community? It's a little bit of both. I think what you'll see is... There are a lot of poor communities in America, um, and they view prisons as essentially a job opportunity. So a prison company uh, like GEO or CCA, which are the two biggest and most well-known players in this industry, will come to a small town and say, this will create 700 jobs for you. This will support the local economy. Uh, and it's for some congressional leaders, it's a, it's a great win. But they also are for-profit companies, and aren't the communities aware of the fact that uh, there's – some of that money is uh, is going to go into people's pockets? 
That's right. These, these are for-profit companies. And frankly, there's very little oversight over how those profits are made. Uh, the companies that I particularly focus on are the technology companies that operate within the prison system. And we'll get to them. Uh, the, the Post also reported that they and their associates have funneled more than $10 million to candidates since 1989 and have spent nearly 28 or 20, yeah, $25 million on lobbying efforts. Uh, so they just want to keep on building more prisons? Well, it's it's a couple of things. One is building more prisons, but also making sure that uh, you, you've seen some stories recently about lobbying efforts to increase uh, sentencing requirements. So not only are building prisons a part of their business, but making sure that they have a steady supply of inmates. So I would assume they don't support the uh, the suggestions that uh, our drug policies have failed. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, I, I can't really speak for the companies. But I, I think uh, they, they sort of demur on those issues. Uh, I mentioned profit. The, the prison industry in America is worth $3.3 billion in annual revenue. Do we know how much of that is profit? Uh, we don't. And frankly, a lot of these companies, I mean, the, the companies that you've mentioned are public and, and their records are accessible. But many of the companies, if not most, are actually private companies. And so there isn't too much financial transparency when it comes to looking at their books. There are 130 private prisons in the country with 157,000 beds. Um, do we know whether they run any better than state and local facilities? Well, this is the sort of classic thing is a private company will come in and they'll say, well, we can run this better than the government can. Um, but the, the amount of protests you see and the amount of issues that you see flaring up, particularly with uh, medical issues when it comes to inmates, um, there, there's no shortage of lawsuits coming out of uh, jails and prisons all around the country, whether it's both privately operated or publicly operated. And we've been hearing more and more about the problems of our prisons becoming, in a sense, mental health facilities. Are they any better at handling troubled uh, prisoners? I, I would say no. Uh, I, I don't think that I think if you would speak with some of the wardens, they, they would be very honest and, and say, we have an issue that we can't actually, that we're not actually very well equipped to deal with. I'd imagine that if I were pitching to create a private prison, I'd say, well, we have a lot of psychiatrists on staff. That probably is part of the business plan. <laughs> Your article, Inside the Shadowy Business of Prison Phone Calls, which you alluded to earlier, uh, in it you began telling the story of Joanne Jones, an occupational therapist from Warwick, Rhode Island, and how she's made an unlikely enemy in the past year, Securus Technologies. Uh, what is Securus Technologies? So Securus Technologies is one of a very few number of prison uh, phone operators. They call themselves technology companies, but essentially their main line of business is they provide the phone services for inmates and their families. Now, why would there be a private, a special company for that? Why wouldn't it just be AT&T or Verizon or whatever the local phone company is? It, well, it used to be operated by the Bell companies, and this is when payphones were common. Uh, but in the late 80s, early 90s, the payphone business started going out of business as cell phones be, became popular and more affordable. So what happened was they started ripping the payphones out of these jails and prisons, and there was no operator that was willing to deal with them because – when you offer phone services to inmates and their families, you need extra security protocols. You need to be able to record the call. 
And there just grew this cottage industry around prison phones where AT&T and Verizon, the big companies, just didn't think it was worth it. So it created this little niche for this market to grow and expand. And what happened in the case of Joanne Jones? Her son was arrested? Her son was arrested uh, in, in January 2014. He has not been convicted yet. He is in a jail in Texas as he's awaiting his trial. She is in Rhode Island. So like any mother, she wants to call her son. Uh, And what she found out was it's not a typical phone call, and these aren't typical prices. So a 15-minute phone call might cost $10, but then there's also a number of additional fees. So she'll find that she has a $6.95 fee just to add money into her account. Uh, And there's also a new service that they've started adding, which is uh, video visits. And so you can pay to do video visits. A lot of people would say, hey, that's a great thing. Um, But there's a couple of issues that people are starting to get upset about, which is in many jails, they're actually taking out in-person visits completely and substituting them just with video visits. And you report that uh, Joanne would have been happy to drive to Texas to see her son, but visitations have been banned at that facility since November 2013. Why? Well, in some instances, and in this case in particular, uh, when the jail enters into a contract with Securus, it eliminates in-person visitations. Now, Securus has very recently announced that they are no longer going to be doing this, but for a couple of years there, they were requiring in their contracts to eliminate in-person visits to replace them with video. And to increase their chance for making a profit because people have to use the phones. Well, that's the cynical perspective. Their marketing perspective is, well, this will reduce the amount of contraband that comes in and out, and this will just make it easier for your officers. But, yes, this does result in higher profits. She, uh, Joanne, tried to read books uh, with a, as a kind of a, a book club that she was establishing with her son. Uh, that must have run to a lot of money if they were going to be talking about it over the phone. That's right. Well, what's interesting about Joanne is, you know, maybe it's like uh, many mothers with uh, sons in their 20s, they started losing touch over time. Uh, but actually, after his, he became incarcerated, she wanted to keep in touch as often as possible just to help him through this. And she was just trying to be a good mother here. Uh, but, yes, yeah, she wanted to call as often as possible and found that it became incredibly expensive and spent well over $1,000 in the last year. Do we know why it's taken so long to have him brought to trial? We don't. And that's, frankly, not something that Joanne and I have discussed. And she's preferred to keep her son um, really out of this. How much is the prison phone business worth these days? Well, it's an incredibly lucrative business by really any metric. Uh, it drives about $1.2 billion in revenue per year. Securus Technologies is the company that I've written about, as well as another company called Global Tellink. Each are worth about $1 billion based on recent private equity investments. You write that over the last decade, the prison phone business has become a scandalous industry characterized by lawsuits, exorbitant fees, high phone rates, and monopolistic relationships between public jails and private companies that openly offer kickbacks to local sheriffs. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack in that sentence, but (laughs) but just to break it down, uh, you know, what people don't know about this phone arrangement is, you know, when you pay your phone bill to AT&T or Verizon, you just pay AT&T and Verizon. You pay the 80 bucks a month or whatever it is. And you don't have too many questions about where that money's going. You know it's going there. With prison phones and, and particularly jail phones, which are really at the county level, 
a big percentage of the money actually goes to the local sheriff's office. So one of the ways that a company like Securus wins contracts at these uh, jails is they'll say to the local sheriff, hey, we'll give you this contract. Uh, if, you, if you take this contract with us, we'll give you 60% of the call revenue that's generated from this facility. And that could amount to millions over the course of months, if not years. Doesn't the Federal Communications Commission regulate these sorts of things? They've begun to. So for the last decade or so, the FCC has been essentially listening to people complain about this. And in 2013, they made their first mandate, which capped the rates at some of, uh, at some of the facilities. And it basically began its first set of rulemaking. Now, what's going to happen later this summer or early this fall is the FCC is planning on a radical change to the prison phone business that could implement a whole new set of regulations and rules for how these companies operate and particularly how these kickbacks are, are, hand, are handled. Have politicians gotten involved in this? There's, have, have laws been proposed? There, there are no laws proposed, but what you'll see in some of the FCC filings are uh, just a few, uh, a few references to uh, the prison phone business. And there's, there's a couple of senators here um, that, that they, they, they straddle a line because they want to support the local law enforcement community who are arguing, hey, if you take away these commissions, we're, we're going to be losing out a significant portion of our budget and we can't do our jobs. But the politicians are also faced with the reality that a good percentage of their districts might have loved ones who are incarcerated and are putting up with the high cost of calls. And, uh, and as we said earlier, a large portion of the prison population is there because of drug-related crimes, in some cases petty crimes. Uh, and uh, it sounds from uh, your article that uh, it's absolutely necessary to arrest those people in the same way that we saw in Ferguson, people were being arrested for minor traffic violations, if there were even traffic violations, simply as a way of paying for the city's budget. Well, what you'll see is these types of situations almost always disproportionately affect people who are lower income. So when you look at some of the statistics around who gets incarcerated, I mean, a vast, vast majority, well over 85%, make less than $25,000 per year. So that's really who we're affecting here. And you write that in May 2015, Foster Campbell, the Louisiana Public Service Commissioner, described the prison phone business in his state as worse than any payday loan scheme. That's right. There's a lot of people that are coming out and saying this is just an, an unholy arrangement between private companies and local sheriff's departments that... Listen, if, if, if these sheriff's departments need budgets, that's totally understandable. They, they need budgets to be able to operate effectively. But the question is, where does that money come from? Should it be coming from poor inmates' families, or should they go to the county commission and ask for the general taxpayers to pay for the funds that they need? So this is what we're seeing here is it's an industry that's unregulated, and sheriff's departments are being offered huge amounts of money for not really doing anything, and for offering a contract that, on its surface, is relatively harmless. We need that perfect hair. Who exactly are you, man? What's going on? All you do is ask me what the hell I am, who I'm with, what I'm buying. What is that like a motherfucking cop, man? Shit is bullshit, man. I'm free. I'm free. Let me be free. I want to be a cop. Banned from Foxwoods Resort and Casino for life. 
This picture was snapped of Officer Camille Stakowitz apparently holding up his middle finger on his way out of Foxwoods. Now it is that Hartford police officer's actions inside that are under review. These are very serious allegations, and we at the police department obviously take them very seriously. In internal affairs investigative documents, police reports Stakowitz got drunk on whiskey at a private party at Foxwoods on February 25th. Later, he was kicked out of a club for causing problems and passed out on the casino floor. Security woke him up, and that's when they say he launched a verbal attack. They say Stakowitz told them he was an off-duty Hartford police officer. Staff report the officer spewed racial slurs, including the N-word, told them, quote, my grandfather owned your grandfather. In the investigation, one Foxwood staffer reported that as a black man, he found Officer Stakowitz's actions offensive and was appalled and concerned with the actions and statements of Officer Stakowitz especially as someone who identified himself as a member of law enforcement. Hartford police say Stakowitz was questioned and does not remember much of the night. He denied being racist. The report says Officer Stakowitz further stated that he does not make racial comments and that some of his best friends are African-American. Some of my best friends have been niggers. The internal investigation found his actions were conduct unbecoming an employee. Also, it says he violated policy by not reporting the incident to headquarters. Does the department still have faith in this officer to fairly patrol the streets? Uh, no, and that officer has been taken off the streets and is on administrative assignment within the police department. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. The former Baltimore City police officer at the center of a fundraising firestorm is speaking out about his plan to raise money for the six officers charged in the death of Freddie Gray. It's all about how he planned to perform. WGZ investigator Mike Kelvin is live in West Baltimore where Gray was arrested with the new interview. Mike? Vic, former Officer Berger says he is genuinely surprised there's any controversy and if people don't like his show, they don't have to see it. But it is creating some negative publicity around these officers at a time when they don't want or need it. I wouldn't do the show without my gun, because as you can see... Bobby Berger says he won't back down from performing in blackface at a November fundraiser for the officers charged in the Freddie Gray case. Will the show go on? Very possibly. We've got over 600, over 600 tickets sold in nine days. He contends there's nothing racist about the act, which cost him his job as a Baltimore police officer in the 1980s, and says he's just impersonating Al Jolson, a white entertainer popular in the 1930s, who performed in blackface. After suing in his case, Berger settled with city police for hundreds of thousands of dollars and believes he now has a duty to support the officers under indictment. I can tell them now they'll never work in law enforcement again because they've been branded. I couldn't get a job as a $10 security guard. The thought of it uh, once again becoming controversial is... is beyond me. The Baltimore City Fraternal Order of Police condemned the fundraiser along with the NAACP. If he as an individual wanted to help the police and because he's in the brotherhood of police officers, then he should have had a bake sale or a car wash. We're trying to build relationships and build the communities back that we don't need anybody walking around in blackface. Berger says he hoped to raise $7,000 for the Baltimore Six and is now looking for a new venue after Michaels and Glen Burnie, his first choice, 
said he couldn't hold it there. People keep texting me, where is it going to be, uh, and where do I send the money? If he gets any other venue to accept it, then we're going to have trouble with him, and we're going to have trouble with the venue, and we will protest against it. Mr. Berger says he wants to give the money directly to the officers, but if the fundraiser ultimately does not happen, he will give that money back. And a lawyer for at least one of the officers has said she does not want a dime of it. Reporting in West Baltimore, Mike Helgren, WJZ Eyewitness News. Mike, thank you. Berger says several Maryland police agencies have already bought tables for the fundraiser. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. We go now to Chicago, where we're joined by Sharon Cooper, who's Sandra Bland's sister. Also with us is Canon Lambert, the attorney representing Sandra Bland's family. We welcome both of you to Democracy Now! Uh, Sharon, first, our condolences to your family on this terrible loss. Thank you very much. Can you respond to the Texas authorities saying that Sandra committed suicide using the plastic garbage bag liner uh, in, that was in her jail cell? I wish that I could provide you with a thorough response. Unfortunately, we have not received a copy of their completed autopsy or any type of preliminary report. Everything that we've received to this point um, has been through the media, so I still feel very— um, misinformed. What was your reaction to the news conference yesterday? And do you feel they should have met with you before they held the news conference? Absolutely. We'd love to have documentation to at least look through it, understand it, and pose questions. To this point, they have not provided us with anything, although we have asked time and time again since we were initially notified last Monday that our sister passed away in their custody. And Sharon Cooper, your response to the claims that your sister had a previous suicide attempt? What we've seen um, in the jail documents that they have referenced, again, have been seen only through the media. Nothing has been given to us directly. Uh, what I have seen, I can assure you that um, it doesn't maintain—it doesn't contain her signature. Um, so we question the uh, authenticity of those documents as well. And I'd like to ask um, Canon Lambert, uh, the attorney representing Sandra Bland's family, uh, Canon Lambert, if you could talk about uh, your response uh, uh, to the uh, preliminary results of the autopsy report and what the significance is legally of the fact that they claim that a lot of marijuana was found in Sandra Bland's system. First, thanks. Uh, I'll be honest with you. The, the trickling of information relative to the autopsy is a little bit troubling. Normally, what will happen is that you'll get the full autopsy and then you're able to review it as opposed to just getting piecemeal information. That being said, uh, as it relates to the legal aspect of marijuana being in her system, frankly, I'm not sure that it has any real relevance to either of the two circumstances that we find ourselves in. If you look at, for example, the stop. Uh, there's no question about the fact that she was lucid. There's no question about the fact that she was not in any way intoxicated. The officer did not look to try and uh, uh, arrest her on those grounds. And, in fact, the documentation that they point to, though we don't know the authenticity of it, as uh, mentioned, uh, they don't make any reference of her being intoxicated or having been arrested because of uh, intoxication. 
if you look at her responses, you can see that she's uh, responsive in a, in a very real way, in a way that psychologically or, uh, or, or, uh, or otherwise she's not altered in any way. And then when you move to uh, the jail uh, aspect of this case, you know, the, 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 the thing is, practically on a, on a legal front, uh, it's almost better for, for a li uh, civil litigation case uh, if, in fact, uh, she were to have obtained marijuana in the jail. That just belies any sort of real logical uh, concept that they would have been uh, doing what they needed to do at the jail if she were able to do that. Um, and so you also ask yourself, too, about whether or not uh, they did an adequate search. Presumptively, they're going to tell us that they did. And what, how would she have brought marijuana into the jail to consume it, as um, has been kind of suggested? There's no real legal uh, relevance, as far as I'm concerned, as it relates to her having ingested I, marijuana. If, I if want I to did. read from the text exchange between Waller County District Attorney Elton Mathis and you, um, Sandra Bland's family attorney, Canon Lambert. Uh, it is a remarkable series of texts. Mathis writes, looking at the autopsy results and toxicology, it appears that she may have swallowed a large quantity of marijuana or smoked it in the jail. Since your clients have possession of Miss Bland's body, I must ask that it not be disturbed any more than necessary and that a proper chain of custody be kept so that she'll be available for future examination by qualified experts. This will, of course, be very relevant in any future criminal or civil litigation. And since the potential evidence is in your possession, custody and control, then you— um, um, uh, respond, um, saying, quote, why did Ranger Ellison release her body to us if they or you needed her to be preserved in a particular state? Wouldn't they have done all they needed to do regarding your criminal investigation prior to releasing her to us? Please advise. Mathis then explains, saying, quote, they were trying to accommodate the family. Who did they who did the autopsy here? Perhaps it can be avoided. Lambert says, quote, I expressly asked Ranger Ellison if she was ready for release, and he told me she had been released by Harris County Coroner. Finally, Mathis writes, quote, She was. The tests they need to conduct now are not customarily done in custody deaths, but the large amounts of drugs in her body would need another procedure. If you can share your autopsy results or allow us to talk to your expert, we may be able to work things out. No one had any idea she would have been smoking that much marijuana or possibly ingested it during the stop. So this is a series of texts um, between you, Canon Lambert, and um, uh, the district attorney. How unusual is this? And are you going to be conducting a second autopsy? So I, I think it's extremely un unusual for a couple of reasons. Uh, we actually were in immediate contact with the medical examiner's office when we did find out that Sandra passed away in police custody. We, they made it very clear to us that it would be counterproductive to come to Texas to retrieve her body without the autopsy being completed. So when we, we asked for no accommodation, we asked that they complete a thorough and full investigation. Given the reason for death that was given, we realized that that is challenging for some to accept. However, we were open to that. We just wanted it to be complete and thorough. So when we intercepted Sandy's body, which was on Friday, when we got there, they confirmed with us that they had completed a full and thorough investigation, and I'm sorry, a full and thorough autopsy of her body at that time, and that would have been inclusive of a toxicology report. 
And, and look, let me let me just kind of uh, explain. Now it seems that he's walking back the notion that he's asked for what he asked for in those text messages. Uh, but those text messages were very real. And the reality of it is, is that we received those text messages on the same day that this family had brought Sandy back uh, to prepare her for her home going. The troubling thing about those texts was to us that uh, the initial autopsy was supposed to be full and complete. And it's important that that take place, because ultimately this family just wants to understand what happened to their daughter, to their sister, to their, their, their aunt, and so forth. Um, and so when we got the, uh, the text messages after they had released her to us, and mind you, uh, we wouldn't have been able to get her absent them releasing her to us. Um, but after they released her to us, we did our own independent autopsy, and thereafter she was embalmed. So the concern that we had is, is that they were looking to try and do a third autopsy. Now, they've since said that's not what they're going to look to do at this point. Uh, so it seems that they've walked back from that uh, that series of representations. Well, Canon Lambert, you, you've indicated now and also previously that uh, what's unusual in this case, one of the things that's unusual is the fact that you've only been receiving partial information. Information has been trickling in uh, about the autopsy report. Could you tell us why you think that is and how typical that is uh, in these kinds of cases? Why haven't you received the full autopsy report in one go? Well, and I'm not looking to try and evade the question. I don't know the answer, really. That's really more a question that, you know, you would almost pose to them. They're in a position where they're sitting on all of the information. They have the full autopsy, apparently, because it's supposedly to be to be released today. But we've not received it as of now. And why it will be released to the media when we've been asking for it. Uh, for some time now, I'm not. I'm not altogether sure. Uh, we've not received the police reports. Uh, we didn't receive the, the booking uh, reports from them. Instead, we've been getting this stuff through the media. Now they might suggest, because I think they have said, is that they were looking uh, to preserve the privacy of the family. But it just doesn't really seem to make sense that you would be trying to preserve the the privacy of the family from the family. Uh, uh, it just doesn't make sense. Instead, we just want to get our hands on all they have so that we can look at it and find out what, what we believe took place and then move from there. A local ABC station in Texas obtained a voicemail that Sandy Bland left for a friend while she was in jail that weekend. This is me. I'm, um, I just was able to see the judge. I don't really know. They got me set at a $5,000 bond. I'm, I'm still just at a loss for words, honestly, about this whole process, how they're switching lanes with no signal turning to all of this. I don't even know. Um, but I'm still here, so I just call me back when you can. So that is Sandy Bland herself recorded in a voicemail message to her friend, Sharon. She had a $5,000 bond set. And did you understand that weekend what was happening um, about your sister being in jail? Had you actually yourself talked to her? I did not myself speak with her. However, my older sister spoke with her. She spoke with her roughly at about 1.50 on Saturday afternoon, where she essentially shared the very same thing that you hear in that voicemail. She does say that she was stopped for a, a 
a failure to signal a lane change and that she had a $5,000 bail, which, of course, meant that she needed $500 bond. And my sister told her, absolutely, I will get with the rest of the sisters and work as expedi expeditiously to get you out of there. And she said, okay, totally understand. And to be honest with you, that voicemail there simply cooperates what's on the dash cam, which is simply a dis disbelief that, that she's in there with a $5,000 bond for a routine traffic stop. Hmm. And Canon Lambert, uh, could you tell us what you would like to happen next uh, legally uh, in this case? First, I'd like to get all of the documentation that they have, photographs. I'd like to get all the reports they have. I'd like to get all the medical they have. I, want, I just want all of the information that they have. Then from that, we'll be able to make our way through that information. And we're also doing our own independent investigation as well. And then ultimately, we'll be able to chart our course. And whether it means that we end up bringing action or whether it means that we come to a conclusion that is consistent with what they represent, at least we'll be in a position where we can share with the family what our findings are, and then thereafter they can make some decisions. Sharon Cooper, can you tell us about your sister, Sandy Bland, who you'll be putting to rest tomorrow, the funeral is set for tomorrow. Tell us about Sandy. Absolutely. She was a fantastic individual, very uh, vibrant, extremely intelligent. I, I always felt like she was very intellectually vocal and curious. And um, what we've been able to bear witness to over the last almost two weeks now is her commitment to raising social awareness around the very types of issues that we're discussing today. And the overwhelming feedback that we have received worldwide is just astounding. And I stand in awe of her. I'm proud of her. And to echo Cannon's points, I celebrate her as my sister. I really do. I want to be a cop. Can you keep your lips sealed? I think with leadership skills can turn low-level offenders into crisp bills. You know, I've always wanted to be a cop. It was a quick day in the high-profile trial of a Charlotte Meckwork police officer. The judge called it a day around noon, so attorneys will have a new pool of jurors to choose from on Monday as they look to fill those three more spots inside the jury box. Eyewitness News reporter Mark Becker has been inside that courtroom all week. He's there once again tonight. Mark? Yeah, Blair, a lot of questions from attorneys today, but they did not settle on any more jurors today. But still, after five days, we have a pretty good picture of what that jury is going to look like. And we could see the first testimony sometime next week. The first week behind them, Jonathan Farrell's family left court this afternoon with the same positive message they've had all week. I'd like to thank everybody and continue to uh, come out and please support us and continue to keep us in your prayers. Thank you and just keep God first. After just five days, we now know who nine of the 12 jurors will be. Seven are women, two are men. Five are white, two are African-American, and one is Hispanic. That leaves three seats and four alternates yet to fill. We live in a, a diverse community, so because of that, I would expect a, um, a diverse jury. Rob Corbett, a defense attorney and former homicide prosecutor, says even though testimony hasn't started yet, attorneys on both sides can use their questions to make their cases to potential jurors. Prosecutors have reminded jurors several times that sympathy should not influence their decision, referring perhaps to Officer Carrick and his family across the courtroom. Officer Carrick's attorney has asked jurors if they think race should be part of the trial. Race is the elephant 
in the room, and uh, and you can't, you certainly can't ignore it. But attorney Tony Shear says it would also be a mistake for attorneys on either side to make race the most important factor in picking jurors. But there are more important factors, the not the least of which is whether the person sitting in that box is there for the right reason, which is to listen fairly, set everything aside, and be fair. And for all that has happened in the courtroom this week, and there's been a lot, we have not really seen anything outside here materialize any of the kinds of problems that some were concerned might happen. And that's certainly good news. We will be here next week. Reporting live outside the Mecklenburg County Courthouse, Mark Becker, Channel 9 Eyewitness News. Mama, I got The governor of North Carolina has just signed a law that prohibits taking down any historical statue on public property. This comes as communities across the South discuss whether to remove Confederate monuments, a debate which intensified after the Charleston church killings. The suspect there had posed in photos with Confederate battle flags. From member station WUNC, Jorge Valencia reports on the debate in North Carolina over how to remember the Civil War. In April, the North Carolina Senate approved what seemed like a simple bill to honor the state's history. It outlined a respectful way to dispose of old tattered flags. It set up a plan to publicly display the state constitution. And it got unanimous support. But after the shootings in June... Confederate monuments across the Queen City are being targeted by... The latest graffiti protest was found in downtown Durham today. Spray-painted on the statue, Black Lives Matter, murderer, KKK. Police found graffiti on statues in front of courthouses, on a college campus, even the North Carolina state capitol grounds. So by the time House lawmakers took up the historic artifacts bill, the content was the same, but public opinion was not. Now, I don't claim to speak on behalf of all black folks. Representative Nathan Baskerville is a Democrat from rural Vance County. But, you know, I've talked to my whole family about it, and they're all black, and um, they share some of the sentiments that I'm going to share with y'all this afternoon. Baskerville told his colleagues he opposed one section of the bill, the part that outlawed removing any monuments from public property. For Baskerville, that means none of the 120 Confederate monuments in North Carolina can ever be taken down. He says that reminds him of oppression. Whether that be from slavery, whether that be from Jim Crow, but that is our history. That is our heritage as it relates to these monuments and markers commemorating the Confederacy. Which, Republican supporters say, is an incomplete view. Here's Representative John Blust. I think the opposition is taking things in history in the present context and they want it to be condemned when it should be seen in the vast tapestry that led this country to greatness. Bless says government should preserve even the darkest parts of history. That is, instead of destroying monuments. That's the kind of thing ISIS does. They take over something, Palmyra, a few weeks ago, and they, they destroy all the historical artifacts. 
We should preserve them, be proud of them, know them in their context, know that there were people we had to fight a great civil war. Mississippi and Tennessee already have similar monument preservation laws, but North Carolina's is more strict. In the end, the vote was almost entirely along party lines. Republicans in favor, Democrats against. Governor Pat McCrory, who is a Republican, signed the bill the same day it landed on his desk. For NPR News, I'm Jorge Valencia in Raleigh. Damn you. Obama. ...running high tonight as the Airway Heights City Council works to repair a reputation they say was damaged by the mayor in a Facebook post. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nadine Woodward. A vote of no confidence by the council for Mayor Patrick Rushing. It all stems from these comments posted to Mayor Patrick Rushing's Facebook page where he compared Michelle Obama to a gorilla and called the president a monkey man. Rushing contends it was all a joke. KXY 4's John Hendricks working for you. He was at that meeting tonight. And John, did the mayor say whether he was going to step down or what he plans to do? Well, Nadine, he told the crowd at least three times that he would not be resigning as the mayor of Airway Heights. Rushing says it will take a vote of the people to get him out of that office. But before any of this happened, the council and mayor heard more than an hour of public comment on this issue. And what you did was outrageous, and someone said it was a joke. It's not a joke. It's not funny. That's the good man in this town, and I will not let him go down. The emotion inside the Airway Heights City Council chambers was raw. He does not have one racist bone in his entire body. He's a good church-going man. The council and mayor getting an earful from the community on what they should do after Mayor Patrick Rushing's comments about the president and first lady sparked outrage across the country, many calling for him to resign. Those are not the values that I've lived in this community for more than 40 years. But Rushing says he would not be resigning as mayor unless he is recalled by the voters. In a 5-1 to one decision, the council voted to have no confidence in their mayor. They also put sanctions in place that prevent him from representing the city without council approval and asks he forfeit $2,000 a month salary. Among those who spoke tonight, Reverend Happy Watkins. The ultimate measure of a man and a woman is not where they stand in times of comfort and conveniences, but where they stand in moments of challenges and controversies. He says he's in the business of forgiveness and invited rushings to an NAACP meeting. Stand up and look them in the eye and say, please forgive me. To that, the mayor said he would attend a meeting to learn more about race relations and mend a divided city. I reached out to the mayor after the meeting was over, and he simply said he was not speaking to anyone. Reporting in studio tonight, John Hendricks, KXLY, 4 News. The gay rights movement is changing everything. It's been a long time coming, six and a half years to be precise. Today, Barack Obama finally arrived in Kenya for his first visit there as president. Obama's late father was from Kenya, so people there consider the president one of their own. But not all Kenyans will be thrilled with what President Obama has to say. He's promised to speak up for gay rights in Kenya, where homosexuality is illegal and discrimination against gay people is widespread. Here's what the president told the BBC ahead of his visit. Everybody deserves fair treatment, equal treatment, in the eyes of the law and the state. And that includes gays, lesbians, transgender persons. I am not a fan of discrimination and bullying of anybody. 
on the basis of race, on the basis of religion, on the basis of sexual orientation or gender. Strong words, but is Kenya listening? Eric Guattari hopes so. He's the executive director of Kenya's National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. He joins me now from Nairobi. Eric Guattari, is this what you wanted to hear from President Obama? It sounds more like what we want to hear from him as he arrives today, and we hope that he'll be consistent in that message with um, whatever spaces he'll be speaking in, whether with the president or with the public. What is the position of the Kenyan government on homosexuality? And as a gay man, how are you treated? We are using a penal code of 1963, which was borrowed from the British government uh, as early as 1897. And what this law says is that anyone who has kind of knowledge against the order of nature is guilty of a felony and is supposed to go to, to jail upon a finding of guilt for 14 years. Just last year... The government produced statistics in Parliament showing that between 2010 and 2014, they had prosecuted 595 cases of homosexuality in the criminal justice system. The recent case that we know of is in February this year, where two young men were arrested in a public restaurant and they were held for four days in a police custody. And when they were presented before court, the court ordered that they be taken through anal examination to prove that they had consensual adult sex in private. Now, Eric, the language that you talked about there, carnal knowledge against nature, I mean, isn't actually that shocking in America because we've had laws like that on the books for a long time until very recently. But the punishment is really shocking. 14 years in jail. I mean, especially considering America now has gay marriage allowed in every state. It's absolutely shocking, but we must also be aware of another law, which is a recent law, and it says that any adult who has indecent acts with another adult, they're supposed to go to jail for five years, and indecent uh, acts with an an adult could uh, be touching hands or kissing, and indecency is subject to the reasonable opinion of anyone in public. Eric, is this something you feel every day, the sort of threat hanging over your head? Uh, Sometimes we walk around knowing that, especially because of the recent arrest that happened this year in February, where people are simply suspected of being gay. If you look at the medical records as to why they were subjected through inner testing, the reason was simply they were suspected of being gay. So some of us walk around fearing that should there be any political pressure to arrest persons who've come out as gay, some of us, uh, like I myself, will be arrested and the treatment we'll be subjected to is cruel and degrading, you know, testing and forced HIV testing to prove that you're homosexual. It is absolutely untenable when it comes to humanity and how you treat another human being. I went to this barber shop in Nairobi and I wanted to get my hair cut, but the barber there told me that I could not receive service because some of the patrons uh, in the barbershop had seen me on television advocating for gay rights, and they were concerned about their association with a known homosexual. I have been uh, denied entry to uh, social premises such as restaurants and bars, and the usual rhetoric that I am told is that people like you are not allowed here. I am lucky to have a landlady who understands me and um, she's not evicted me to the present, notwithstanding the fact that we've had a conversation about my orientation. I would say I am lucky to not have gone through experiences of violence to a scale that is physical. Eric, I wonder just as a Kenyan, how do you feel 
you know, about the president coming to visit, but it took him six and a half years to do that. He made a promise and he's keeping his word. Um, best we say, is it better later than never? The very conviction and anchor that he had for running for presidency, the ideals of social democracy and the equality that he ran with, we are looking forward to feeling that effect here. I remember when he was in Kenya last time as a senator, I attended his lecture at the University of Nairobi as a law student there, and I was very, very much inspired. I look at him today, and a lot of Kenyans look at him today as a man who's journeyed through a lot of hardship to a point of great success. Uh, he stands as a man who inspires a lot, a lot of hope in a lot of young men and young women and others in this country that they can make it. Eric Guattari is executive director of Kenya's National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. Because at the moment, black lives matter. They matter. Our media is showing you, obviously they don't. So for y'all that can sit around and say all lives matter, I want you to go put it on a poster and stand out on a corner somewhere. If we can get enough white people to show that all lives matter, maybe they'll stop killing our black brothers. Because obviously that's what it's going to take for the white people to get up and get tired of black people saying black lives matter. Netroots is a conference put together by a lot of progressives in the country. It started uh, basically out of Daily Coast, which is a very popular blog uh, on the uh, left side of the spectrum. And uh, they get there to discuss many of the progressive issues. Oftentimes, candidates show up, especially, obviously, in, in a year where there are primaries and a lot of them running. And so, in this case, same thing. Martin O'Malley shows up. Bernie Sanders shows up. Hillary Clinton did not show up, okay? When Martin O'Malley uh, is speaking, and he's having a Q&A back and forth, um, protesters uh, that, are, that say that they're with Black Lives Matter um, come up and start protesting. Now, O'Malley is from Baltimore. He was governor of Maryland. There's some logical nexus there. They even get up on stage. So let's show you a video of that and then discuss whether this was right or wrong. Demonstrators have just taken over O'Malley's time on stage here at Netroots. So right now, here today, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the lives lost, specifically the black and women's lives that are lost. If I die in police custody, if I die in police custody, call my mom first. Call my mom first. And burn this down. Then burn this down. This issue is so important. Black lives matter. White lives matter. I'm trying to respond to the call of your question as best I can. Do not generalize this sh I want an actual conversation to happen. Please, let's do this. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Yes. Specifically, I believe every police department in America should have to report in an open and transparent and timely way all police-involved shootings, all discourtesy complaints, and all brutality complaints. Okay, and they continued to chant, and uh, they had to wrap it up. So 
is this a productive way of going about things? Now, it's easy for me to say it's not, uh, and I think that others can come in and say, look, uh, they didn't have this on the agenda to the point that they should have. In fact, one person is about to say that in the next video we're going to show you, uh, and that they had to bring issue uh, this attention to this issue, and the best way to do that is while a presidential contender, such as he is, uh, is on the stage. I understand all of that, and I've said this many times in the past. So you say your piece, you bring attention to it, and we'd be covering it just the same, right? And then we'd be giving you credit for it. But instead, when you don't let him speak, well, then people go, okay, but, but then it seemed like you were being unfair to him. And he's not against you. He's largely on your side. Now, he stepped in it by saying black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. Now, is that true? Of course that's true, right? But they say within this context that that wasn't the best thing to say. In fact, I'll get to that in a second here, uh, legitimate criticism of that statement, right? Now, Bernie Sanders comes on next. They do the same thing to Bernie Sanders. Okay, let's see a report from them. They wanted them to say their names on camera, on stage. So I was told that that a couple more minutes and then we're going to get... They wanted them to address what they see as widespread institutional racism throughout the United States. For a lot of them, they did not seem satisfied by what they saw. While Senator Sanders was speaking, a lot of them just walked out on him right before he was finished. Should I continue or leave? Yeah, hold on one second. Hold on, hold on. It's okay with me. Listen, I don't have black lives, of course, matter. And I spent 50 years of my life fighting for civil rights and for dignity. But if you don't want me to be here, that's okay. No, so you were on the stage with presidential candidates, but you weren't necessarily invited to be there. What happened? The program itself and the structure of the conference wasn't really lending itself to this very important conversation. I came away with the impression that, you know, they have a lot of homework to do. And I hope that they're ready to, uh, you know, really sit down and listen and talk to these communities, right, and come up and build their platform with these communities. They got a lot of homework to do. But I, I, I would challenge you and say you've got a lot of homework to do. So in how to do this in a way where you get people on your side. Like we spend all our time here on the Young Turks trying to uh, get people to understand one another and to bring these issues to life and, and to talk about it in a way so that people understand how much black lives matter and how much they don't understand is happening to the black community. We had a, a former Baltimore police officer, Michael Wood, who say, did you think that blacks in this country have been lying for 100 years? Of course not. We've been abusing him for all this time. And he explained in detail how that abuse happens. We bring that to light. But it's one thing when you bring that to light. It's another thing when you smother out all other conversation. Bernie Sanders is not your enemy. I mean, if you think that Bernie Sanders hasn't done enough and that he should go home and do his homework and he should know all the names of the people and instead of talking about what all the different issues, all should he, he should talk about is your issue and he should say all the names... And then at one point, as you heard in the video, uh, one of the women involved said, uh, you know, if I get killed in police custody, call my mom first. I'm 100% with you. And I, you know, we reported on Sandy Bland here. We reported on every single issue. And I've been more upset than I think any anchor in America. You can go check uh, the videos. But then she said, then burn this shit down. Would you be justified in that anger if that happened to you? Of course you would, Right. Are you being productive when you say burn this shit down and that makes it on CNN? No, what that does is that has people turn you off. Instead of turning you on and listening to what you have to say and go, oh, 
I want to hear you out. Oh, that's an interesting point. I didn't know that. They go, oh, you see that? They wouldn't even let the, the, the most liberal senator in the country speak. They, wouldn't, they shut him down. They didn't even give him an opportunity. And what did they say? They burned this shit down, right? Okay, well, then obviously uh, these people are not worth listening to. You might completely disagree with that. And you might be furious about that. But if you think that's not the reaction a lot of people are going to have, you're enormously naive. So I don't think you're helping your cause, and, uh, and that pisses me off. So you say I got no right to be pissed off? Well, that's your opinion. But my opinion is this issue is too important for you to get you know, all drunk on my moment. My moment. I, I'm going to have that moment. I'm going to take it away from Bernie Sanders. I'm going to take it away from Martin O'Malley. I got no love for O'Malley. Okay? Now let me give you the context of why people are upset when O'Malley said white lives matter and, and all lives matter. L. Joy Williams, who does a, a, a podcast called This Week in Blackness, asked him, do you understand the difference in responding to that conversation in that context with all lives matter or white lives matter when we're specifically talking about black death that is not all-inclusive? Now, that's a fair point. What he's saying here, and for those who are skeptical, hear him out. What he's saying is, do all lives matter? Of course they do. White lives, of course they matter. Every life matters, right? Progressives believe that to their core. But in the context of a conversation about how cops have been abusing blacks in this country, let's not mix up the issues here. Because are we going to address the clear segregation and discrimination going on against the black community, or are we not going to do that? So don't dissipate that by saying, ah, yeah, sure, all lives matter. What's the big deal, right? Now, at the same time, apologizing for that is also weird, right? Because of course white lives matter. So O'Malley is then forced into a weird kind of apology where he says, uh, I certainly do understand that. I believe what I first said was that black lives matter before those other two phrases. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is a goddamn mess. Okay, now I said black lives before white lives, so I care more about black lives? It's an absolute mess. Okay, one more from O'Malley. He says, that was a mistake on my part, and I meant no disrespect. I did not mean to be insensitive in any way or communicate that. I did not understand the tremendous passion, commitment, and feeling and depth of feeling that all of us should be attaching to this issue. Look, if you want to give the protesters more credit, you say, you see that? He, he apparently didn't understand the depth of the passion, right? And they made that clear to him. And if they'd just done it with Martin O'Malley, and then they had let him speak... Or they'd done it also with Bernie Sanders and every speaker, but then they'd let them speak. I think we're having a completely different conversation. But as things now stand now, what we have is nobody got to hear the candidates. Nobody got to even really effectively hear their position on this issue. And then there's national news talking about how black people disrupted an even liberal conference with a lot of verbiage that didn't help the situation. And then on top of that, you have a liberal candidate so-called liberal candidate, but, you know, relatively speaking, certainly compared to the Republicans, uh, now apologizing for saying white lives matter. None of this looks good. If you care about this movement, I don't, I don't think that uh, today's the day you celebrate and go, got him, okay? Uh, I wish this helped, but I really don't think it did. JR, uh, am I... Seen any of this wrong? Any thoughts from, from your perspective? I think, as usual, there's always sections of it. So, of course, yeah, there's a, there's a point you go. So you have to have an actual end game. So once you see that you have the attention, because the point is to get the attention. Yeah. I have no, nothing wrong with interruptions. I have no problem with the way it was done to get the attention. In fact, even uh, one of the, I think, one of the group leaders 
got on stage and was able to help with the moderation. Because that, I think, was one of the problems was it wasn't planned to organize around this huge event, uh, this huge problem that they know has been happening in this country and the, the, up, the, the uprising of, of anger and emotion over it and people finally sick of it to want to stop it. So it's just since they missed that planning moment, yeah, go, maybe if you want to call a, a, an audible and you have her up on stage, do that. But once you have that platform, now you go ahead and have the conversation. That's where I think maybe these protests went too far. But to go in and say, well, finally, you, um, now that we have your, you have, we'll finally have your attention, for them to, to say, well, now you have to suddenly be quiet and all that stuff, that didn't get anywhere. We've been quiet for a long time, and it doesn't work. Just say like, just same like when, when the protests and riots happened, say Ferguson and, uh, and Baltimore. They said, well, if you guys would just be quiet and, and chill out about this, then we'd actually hear where you're coming from. This has been happening. You know, when these peaceful protests happen, you don't cover them. I'm not saying you specifically, but you don't cover them. You don't understand what's happening. You just say, oh, yeah, blah, black card, black card, race card, race card. You keep playing that and you push, you shove it aside. This will get attention once someone gets interrupted. Now, once you do have that attention, then the conversation can happen. I, there's both sides. One needs to bring it down, one needs to bring it up. You know? Someone, yep. One side needs to get a little more upset about this, willing to do something. And the other side, once, you, once you've gotten them there, know you've gotten them there, and then just have a regular conversation. Let's stop the yelling now, because we got them. Now we got them. Now let's talk. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. In fact, you could even go further and make a legitimate criticism like, hey, show Martin O'Malley, even Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is right. He's been fighting on the right side of this for 50 years now, right? Uh, probably the, maybe the single worst guy to attack on this issue in terms of people in the Senate, at least. Okay. Uh, having said that, show me your passion about the issue. Show me what you're going to do. And I, I'm not sure the answers were great in that context, right? But if we shut down the conversation after that, People, you're, you're going to alienate people. You don't want to alienate people. You want to bring them into the conversation because that's the only way we're going to get change. We're not going to change just talking to one, and our, one another and, and, and high-fiving each other and being like, yeah, we're so right. Oh, it feels so good to be so right. No, we got to get people to see our perspective, and, and that's how you begin change. And when you shut down a conversation, I don't think that happens at all. Black Lives Matter hashtag became a powerful tool to mobilize thousands of protesters angered over recent police killings of unarmed black men. But many activists acknowledge that hashtag alone can't sustain the movement. They're meeting tomorrow in Cleveland to start figuring out how to turn their protests online and in the streets into real change. Adrian Florido of NPR's Code Switch team has more. Michael Brown in Ferguson, Eric Garner in New York, Tamir Rice in Cleveland all household names thanks to thousands of activists who took to social media and the streets to protest their deaths at the hands of police. But for months now, a handful of leaders within this protest movement have been trying to figure out where to take it next. To help figure that out, they decided to do something that isn't possible on Twitter. So we thought it was appropriate and necessary for us to 
bring people together. That's Maurice Mitchell. He's a Cleveland-based organizer and one of the leaders who planned this week's conference at Cleveland State University. They're expecting 800 black activists from across the country. This convening is a place where we can show up on our demands and create a space to figure out where we go next and how we make sure that this tremendous power and this tremendous building of energy lands in a real way where our people in our local communities really feel changes. There are lots of possibilities for that change. Do they push for new laws locally and nationally? Start a new civil rights organization? Back political candidates? No one really knows yet, but lots of people are eager to find out. One is Nat Williams. He's executive director of the Washington-based Hill Snowden Foundation, which is helping to fund this week's conference. These founding moments are very critical. When you look back in history, you usually do see a gathering that launches, you know, substantive and deep social transformation over a period of time. He points to the conference that black leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois held at Niagara Falls in 1905, which led to the formation of the NAACP. Williams says the movement for black lives is ushering in a new chapter in the fight for racial justice. And because it's led by many young people, it's drawing in a new generation that hasn't really connected with traditional groups like the NAACP. That's why Williams' foundation has committed nearly a million dollars in grants over three years. This is not just about police accountability. This is really about trying to develop the political institutional power to address any issue of social significance that limits the ability for the black community to thrive. But the conference in Cleveland won't only be about strategy. Organizers are calling it a safe healing space, a place where activists will be able to talk openly about their experiences with racism. And there will be counselors on hand. While Trina Middleton is another of the conference organizers, she says this weekend's gathering will be like a brush arbor, those places where slaves held secret meetings to organize, pray, and express emotions. That's what this gives us, a brush arbor experience to come together in love and support of one another. Middleton says even today, these safe spaces can be elusive for black people. Her cousin was a DePayne Middleton doctor. She was one of the nine people killed during a prayer meeting at Charleston's Emanuel AME Church last month. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Washington. It is Andre the Giant falls into the ocean as my next two opponents fall in the ocean floor and I pin them. So will Donald Trump and all the Hulkamaniacs. But as Donald Trump hangs onto the top of the Trump Plaza with his family under his other arm, as they sink to the bottom of the sea, thank God Donald Trump's a Hulkamaniac. He'll know enough to let go of his materialistic possessions, hang on to the wife and kids, dog paddle with his life all the way to safety. But Donald, if something happens, you run out of gas, and all those little Hulkamaniacs run out of gas, just hang on to the largest back in the world, and I'll dog paddle us, backstroke all of us to safety. Oh, and thank you, Hulk Hogan. Let's get back to action. Wrestling superstar Hulk Hogan got a smackdown from World Wrestling Entertainment today, firing the WWE star after he was heard repeating the N-word in a racist rant. According to Radar Online and the National Enquirer, Hogan is heard on the tape, which was recorded in 2006, talking about his daughter Brooke 
falsely accused of sleeping with an African-American. I mean, I am a racist to a point. But then, when it comes to nice people and and whatever. Then says, I mean, I'd rather if she was going to some nigga, I'd rather have her marry an eight foot tall nigga worth a hundred million dollars. Like a basketball player. Guess we're all a little racist. Hogan's rant captured during his performance in a secretly recorded sex tape, and he's suing Gawker to try to stop the online website from releasing it. Hogan responded Friday in a statement saying, It was unacceptable for me to have used that offensive language. There is no excuse for it, and I apologize for having done it. I am disappointed with myself that I use language that is offensive and inconsistent with my own beliefs. It is not who I am. I don't know who would want to enter into a contract with him after this. I wouldn't be surprised if everybody just drops him cold. Hogan says he is resigning from the WWE, while the WWE saying Hogan was fired. WWE terminated its contract with Terry Bollea, a.k.a. Hulk Hogan. WWE is committed to embracing and celebrating individuals from all backgrounds, as demonstrated by the diversity of our employees, performers, and fans worldwide. What we saw in that tape is exactly what 21st century racism looks like. You may like black people and be friendly to black children, but you don't want your child to marry a black person. When Hogan used the N-word during a 2012 radio broadcast, he explained that a black wrestler, Booker T, called him the word during a match. And they're all talking trash. <laughs> Booker T goes, I'm coming for you, Hogan, you Hogan got it past that time, but now finds himself in the same position of other celebrities caught using racially charged language. Remember Mel Gibson's rants? And if you get raped by a pack of it'll be your fault. And Michael Richards. Both caught. Others, such as Paula Dean, Justin Bieber, and Madonna, also caught and also apologized for using the word. Apology alone works for some, not for all. As for Hogan, his name and likeness stricken from the WWE website. of Negro domination hangs over us like the sword of Damocles. Gus T. Renegade, the cows, uh, in for another broadcast, hopefully, to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Uh, today's date, Saturday, July 25th, 2015. So I have been told, still on vacation. That is a lesson for the summer. Next time, vacation means vacation, no programs. Anywho, uh, compensatory call in. Feel free to chime in. The number to dial 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again. Seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. 
press star 6 if you would like to participate. The program ended yesterday. I went to tell other victims of racism. <laughs> the line from the summer, uh, the threat of Negro domination hangs over us like the sword of Damocles. And everybody I told had the same response. What's the sword of Damocles? I said, wow. <laughs> nobody, nobody gets any of uh, the things that I find funny. Moving forward. Uh, quick things to uh, touch before we get to some of the folks that called in. Um, just being on vacation kind of through some of, uh, some of my analysis on some of the uh, events that happened this week, I probably would have included something about the shooting that happened, uh, down in Louisiana with so much, uh, different things happening, uh, globally this week that I probably missed a few things I would have caught if I had been on my normal grind. But, uh, that is the summertime, even within all of that. I know a lot of people were focused still on uh, the situation in Texas, with uh sandra bland uh i wrote about that i think her funeral uh was today unless i am mistaken uh you heard the segment that was on democracy now with the attorney for the family who is a black male uh, as well as her sister and kind of answering some of the questions that uh, my bff amy goodman pitched yesterday morning uh from democracy now um only thing I can say on that, I know people have lots to say, and as I, I've written on this now, uh, the thing that I would say, in fact, I will I will use my one aid. Uh, we're very current uh, today. This just was reported on uh, KSDK today. As I said, I just wrote about Sandra, Sandra Bland. Uh, I also, in that article, uh, referenced uh, Kimberly Randall King, uh, who is the black uh, black female, uh, 21 year old mother who died in 2014, uh, just about less than 20 minute drive from Ferguson, Missouri. This was last September. Uh, KSDK in Missouri reported this today. Four Pagedale police officers are named in a wrongful death lawsuit filed today. News Channel 5's Art Holiday has details about the woman who hanged herself last year while in the Pagedale jail. Art. Okay, Kimberly Randall King was jailed last September for multiple traffic warrants. Her family's attorney says she became hysterical while she was in jail because she was afraid of losing her job in the house where she lived with her two children. The wrongful death lawsuit filed Friday alleges the city of Pagedale and four police officers failed to monitor prisoner Kimberly Randall King for 45 minutes, enough time for her to commit suicide last September. She hung herself in plain view, and no one glanced at the monitor. No one cared enough. Kimberly Randall King was a mother of two who worked as a hotel housekeeper. Meehan says Randall King was worried about losing that job and her house, the reason she became upset inside the jail. She screamed. She, she was hysterical. According to attorney Meehan, there are 13 video cameras inside the Pagedale jail which means the suicide of Kimberly Randall King was documented on video. According to Meehan, shortly before 4 p.m., the distraught Randall King screamed, I'm going to die if I go back there, referring to the holding cell. At 5.07, according to Meehan, Randall King threw herself on the floor, flailing her arms and legs, crying and screaming. Between 5.09 and 5.17, she removed her T-shirt, tied it to holes in the wall, and used it to hang herself. Meehan says no one noticed until 5.33, even though all of this should have been seen on a security TV monitor. This is her desk. Here's her computer. 
and right above that is the monitors. You, all, you just glance up every once in a while. Meehan says the jail failed to follow its own rules about monitoring prisoners or notifying the supervisor on duty when a problem arises. That's their protocol. If there's a problem, you just tell the supervisor, hey, I'm, this, this lady is having a, a difficult time. You might want to keep an eye on her. The Paysdale police chief told News Channel 5 he could not comment on the case. We asked to speak to the family of Kimberly Randall King, but their attorney is handling media requests. Art Holiday, News Channel 5. Right on. Uh, that, that was just reported a few hours ago. Uh, I quoted uh, Kimberly Randall King's uh, attorney, uh, Mr. Meehan. I uh, quoted him in the article uh, that I got published, I think, Tuesday. Uh, I spoke with him for about 45 minutes or so. He is a uh, black male, uh, older black male. He's in his 60s. Uh, and he, at least to me, seemed a lot less confused about racism. Uh, and I guess the only thing... Uh, that I would submit um, when I was doing the article uh, to talk about this issue. I was, I had a different opinion, a different thesis uh, prior to speaking to Mr. Meehan. Uh, I was more, uh, I think, similar viewpoint that most folks had, you know, that this is system of white supremacy. This is not believable. They always, you know, say that it's suicide, Lennon Lacey, the whole history of lynching black people and whatever the circumstances are, it's always, oh, the black person committed suicide or what. They even said that about uh, Minister Malcolm X's father, uh, that he uh, killed himself. He bashed his own head in with a hammer and threw himself on the railroad track. They always say that about black people. Um, when I spoke with Mr. Meehan, and I had the same opinion about Kimberly Randall King last year, uh, as did many of her family members, that is my understanding. I spoke with the attorney, and as you heard in that clip, that they have uh, lots of video where you can see, and even in some instances, you can clearly make out the audio of what is being said. And uh, he said that, you know, I, I think talking about Kimberly Randall King, I think uh, I'm talking to her attorney, he said from the video that I've seen and the investigation and everything, being able to see it, uh, I think she committed suicide. But that does not mean racism, white supremacy was not practiced and that even her, if she did commit suicide, uh, that still would be an act of racism. Uh, and just the way that he uh, explained it, he said, you harass people. He emphasized before he even answered any of my questions. And I spoke with him on the phone before he even answered any of my questions. He said, have you read the DOJ report from Ferguson? I said, yes. Have you been following all that? And them, you know, basically having a, a extortion system against black citizens and doing all of these stops and the report, even the uh, Missouri attorney general uh, had talked about this as well, that they have these long records of, uh, what they call racial disparities and pulling over and harassing black citizens. And it's not just in Missouri, but since we're talking about where this happened, uh, but he said, you know, are you familiar with all that? He said, this is putting a human face on it. You can think of Kimberly Randall King. She didn't have any sort of criminal record, no drug history, no nothing, violence, nothing. Her whole record was traffic violations. That's it. Warrants for traffic violations. You heard that in the audio clip. <laughs> He said to go around and harass black people, make it difficult for them to get jobs, housing, finances, whole nine areas of people activity. And then you hound them until you get them in prison. And the few little bit of morsels that you have allowed them to have in the system of white supremacy and their black children, you're going to take all of that away from them over traffic violations. 
that that is a disgrace and that, yes, that is an act of white supremacy. And he said, which I thought was most importantly, he said, absolutely. You put someone in that sort of stressful uh, situation, you stress them out, you mistreat them. Who knows uh, from a pharmaceutical perspective, if there were any uh, sort of medications or anything administered, uh, any other sort of abuse that went on. Absolutely. If you do that to someone, you could push them to the point where they become self destructive. Absolutely. Uh, He said this and suicide is the number one leading cause of death for folks who are in jail. That's not the after conviction part, right? That's just if you've been arrested or what have you, Uh, unless I've been misinformed, it is number one cause of death in jail. And it is pretty high. Even once you get to the uh, uh, prison side, after you have been convicted, we did just read a side of Shakur. Absolutely. She said in the book that you have lots of mysterious hangings suicide it's easy for white people to lie and make up whatever they want i think mr fuller he used to uh, reference shawshank redemption a lot back in the day and he would say that the prison system 40 50 years ago maybe not even that long he said this was routine uh that you would just expect if a black person went to prison they were gonna die (laughs) that was just that was the end of it anything could happen and nobody would care wouldn't be any articles hashtags nothing that that's just what you can expect and he said it absolutely could get that way again Uh, i would say all that simply to say that everyone is absolutely correct it's logical to have uh, suspicion about racism white supremacy it's logical to have any sort of suspicion about any death Uh, particularly a death with the police involvement or being in police custody, anything like that is absolutely logical to have suspicion. And they absolutely may uh, have killed uh, Kendra Darnell Chapman. That's the 18 year old black female from uh, Alabama. They may have killed her. They may have killed Anthony Ware. They may have killed Sandra Bland. And you can just add boom, 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 all the way down. Absolutely. However, I would also encourage folks to keep in mind Uh, That suicide does happen in the system of white supremacy and that would be every bit a racist act on the same level as Dylan Roof running in a church, the same as any other uh, Ben Tillman going out to kill people uh, for the Hamsburg massacre, any other act of racism, white supremacy that you can think of. In my opinion, I think it's even more sinister to just say that I'm going to sit back and harass and molest and abuse and torture black people until they just can't take it anymore. And then they just commit suicide and we all stand back. Oh, I don't have this tragedy. Crazy. That's that is the only thing that I am suggesting. Everyone. Absolutely. You're correct. But I totally think that it could be that Sandra Bland did commit suicide and that that was a result of white terrorism and torture uh, against this black female that they had in custody, uh, which I would also submit that I think that might have been what happened with Kimberly uh, Randall King. And uh, again, from speaking with her attorney, that is the impression that I got there. Uh, And I guess last uh, comment that I would make uh, in after writing that report, one of the responses that I got, uh, the person was talking about Kimberly Randall King, that they had drastically underestimated the traumatic impact that the system of white supremacy can have on our mental health and the conduct of black people and I thought that was an extremely important statement I am of the same opinion Uh, that is something I would encourage folks to think about the system of white supremacy can have a huge impact on our mental health our sanity and our behavior obviously for the worse I will stop there. 
uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, you should be with us. We are on vacation today, so I'm not really, uh, I'm just kind of facilitating. So I hope people will not uh, just be lazy and sit back and wait till the last minute to talk. Go ahead, get your hand up. That way I can just relax and continue to be on vacation and enjoy hanging out. Uh, all the people who dialed in, your line should be open. Feel free to uh, participate. Uh, if you could watch the background noise, that would be fantastic. Uh, if you could speak one time and then allow everybody else to speak, that would be great. Make sure everybody gets an opportunity to share. Thank you kindly. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Uh, just be lazy and sit back and wait till the last minute to talk. Go ahead, get your hand up. That way I can... Just relax and continue to be on vacation and enjoy hanging out. Uh, all the people who dialed in, your line should be open. Feel free to uh, participate. Uh, if you could watch the background noise, that would be fantastic. Uh, if you could speak one time and then allow everybody else to speak, that would be great. Make sure everybody gets an opportunity to share. Thank you kindly. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everybody, for the week. Uh, just three things. Uh, first, uh, Mr. Hulk Hogan. Uh, it sounds like he's just sorry he got caught. That's <laughs> all that's like. Uh, and uh, he, he looks he looks like an alcoholic because he's, you know, red-faced, quote-unquote, all of the time. Um and, you know, even his name itself, from my understanding, is a brand. And it's a brand that's, uh, that uh, wails uh, millions of dollars. So, you know, it's a situation he got, he got caught. And uh, it's not a matter of, of him uh, uh, something different than how he actually feels uh, and thinks. Uh, Black Lives Matter organization. Uh, I when when it first started, I always had a question mark about it. Uh, one thing, one observation I have is is you you can't be pussyfooting around with uh, the system of racism and white supremacy uh, in uh, in order to uh, get along with uh, uh, some white people uh, because it it would always it would always, it, it would always uh, kind of like. Uh, uh, disintegrating your face, so to speak, you know, I, I would always suggest just speak, speak straightforward to the system of racism, white supremacy, to any and every uh, white person and non-white person, so to speak, uh, as far as that concern, and, and uh, you know, and, and let things go from there. Uh, that's that's a, just an observation that I have about this so-called Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Uh, number three, uh, uh, I don't know if anybody saw it, but it was com com uh, peculiar uh, that uh, they uh, had, quote-unquote, two, two uh, inmate witnesses of uh, Mrs. Bland, and they were interviewed. Now, the person that I saw they interviewed uh, was a white female, uh, a very peculiar uh, person to have as a witness that reportedly that was in jail with Miss Bland. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's just you know, think about it. What you what what it is, you know, it's just uh, sick, sick, really sick. Uh, the cell itself, 
the cell itself, every time I every time I see it, 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 it I can see where it would be a torture just to be in that in that cell itself. You know, especially someone who's not used to being arrested and, and being in a jail of any type. Uh, just to go in there, you, you get, I mean, claustrophobia, let alone talking about the tension and stress that uh, uh, took place before she was uh, uh, put in that situation. I mean, wow. I mean, you, you're talking about torture, uh, a torturous time that she had, uh, uh, the way I look at it. And uh, well, that, that's all I have for, for right now. Thank you. Nick. I, uh, yes, ma'am. Um, I I can wait. Oh no, go ahead. Um, you 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 know I always say that white people lie about everything all the time. It is my and I just I work so hard, so hard because black people will catch you know white people will be caught in a lie and black people will say well, you know but I want to know the truth of this. I'm like, come on, that's probably lying too. And then white people be caught in another lie. And I'm just watching all of this with Miss Bland's staff. Every time they get caught in a lie, it's like when they tell the next lie, everybody jumps on board. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, can't you just accept that they lie about everything all of the time? And I have to tell you, um, it's it's like – I see, it's, it's pretty logical, you know, it's pretty logical. It's like, it, it, was there a memo or something that said white people stopped hanging black people and now black people are going to hang themselves? I mean, it's just, so, you know, they're, they're lying and they're saying, oh, you're doing it to yourselves. You're, you're hanging yourselves now. When we've never had a history of hanging ourselves, that's a European thing. All of their books, the kings, the, okay, let's hang this one. Then when they get over to America, let's hang that one. And then in the military, let's hang this one. And Robin Williams is like, I'm out of here. I'm going to hang myself. This is a very Eurocentric thing. Black people simply do not run around hanging themselves. Not that they don't kill themselves and not that I don't know I don't know people who've committed suicide, but I mean black people just was there a memo when we started doing it to ourselves? Like we started setting our own houses on fire and our own businesses on fire. There was like I said, This is very it's very European. And they're just trying so hard to get you to believe that now we just do these things to ourselves. And I know people. I know people who've lost their jobs. They've lost their their spouses. They've lost their children. You know, after a year of really going down the tubes, they will commit suicide. But suicide is not a spur-of-the-moment thing. It's not like, you know, I mean, when when bad things happen on the spur of the moment, I just got shot 20 times. I'm going to see, can I live? You know, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process. You know, it's a plan. It's not like, oh, this is awful today. This is awful in the last five hours. You know, today I'm going to kill myself. No, that is not what suicide is. And I think that black people know this. I think we know that suicide is a very long process. It takes a plan a plan and a while. And when you hear about something like that just happening on the spur of the moment, that's murder. That's not suicide. And the other, the last thing I'm going to say, the last thing I'm going to say is that uh, if you look at that videotape when that correctional officer looked into her cell, she didn't look up. She looked down. 
That's it. Thanks for listening. Uh, good evening. Uh, am I coming through? Yes. Oh, thank you, thank you. A uh, couple of things I will not be long. Uh, one, the, uh, the Young Turk segment, uh, all of y'all know how I feel about them. I'm not going to repeat it. But the way they spoke on presidential candidates, Sanders and O'Malley being interrupted by those that say Black Lives Matter and how this is going to hurt their cause. I don't think it's going to hurt their cause. I think the people going, the people who they who are in that in those audiences felt the same way about them going in as they as they did leaving. Now, again, Bernie Sanders, fifty years fighting civil rights. Uh, I I have no. I have no evidence of this. If anybody does, please. Uh, M1, are you with us? Uh, not hearing you? I'm not sure something happened. Are you with us, M1? I can hear you. Oh, okay. Good. We can hear you now. We, it, for a second, it just it was like static, and we weren't hearing you, but we okay. can hear you now. Oh, no problem. Yeah, like I said, no idea of Bernie Sanders being a civil rights fighter. And as for uh, Governor Malley uh, saying Black Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, that's the usual conflation that we constantly have to whenever black people try to bring up our issues, our legitimate issues of racism, you got to hear the women's issues, you got to hear the LGBT issues. I mean, how many times has that been done by guests on your show, guys, to, to just people in general? And as for the ex-cop who wants to perform a blackface fundraiser for those six charged in Freddie Gray's death, see this is see this also proves that white people are not ignorant on racism or dedicated. Never mind this guy lost his job in the 80s for doing blackface. That's anywhere between two and three and a half decades. Never mind he lost his job for this. Never mind how he's complaining about how he he can never be another law enforcement officer. He can't even get a $10 an hour security gig. But in spite of all of that, he's still going to do a racist blackface routine. So 
it just goes to show you what what he's truly dedicated to and white people can be truly dedicated to loss of income don't matter his reputation slander don't matter I'm just going to keep on doing this and that's all I have to say Yes, sir. Yes, this is Frank from Black Hollywood. Um, greetings, everybody on the line. Um, there's been so much going on. Um, I, that last piece you said about uh, Kimberly King, I believe her name was, sounds like the perfect uh, explanation to what happened to Sandra Bland. And I was hesitant to really come to any, you know, conclusive but that sounds about right. Sounds Your volume just dropped really low. Okay, yeah, she was down in Texas. Okay. She was down in Texas preparing for a job interview uh, at her alma mater. Um, so I would assume she had been out of work for a significant amount of time, most likely. And looking to increase her status, she comes down there and gets into a kerfuffle with the racist white uh, stormtroopers. And, um, yeah, she could have felt like that was her chance to really put her life back in the course. So uh, that just goes into the whole question of what should our response be to that type of thing. Um, because, yes, it is the system of white supremacy as well, but I think everybody that's out there talking about it now seems to think it was just like they strung her up and did whatever. That's possible, but this sounds like a more plausible situation. Um, Martin O'Malley, that situation, um, felt like the young lady that was speaking for Black Lives Matter um, seem to really cross messages with a lot of uh, feminist uh, language, and uh, she really seemed to miss the point of Black Lives Mattering because she's off on her own uh, situation. I, I I applaud the effort at disruption, um, not necessarily constructive, but I think it was yes courageous in a way. Uh, to be disruptive in white spaces. Um, but, that, I mean, that goes to a whole Sandra Bland thing. I'm, the constant theme I'm hearing now is that is black women that are being sent to jail, and, you know, that's been black men's cross the bear for the longest time. Uh, I think it shows, like, orange is the new black, like maybe they're conditioning um, some of these reality that this is the next wave you know we've already tried to defeat black men so now we've got black women to defeat in the same way but on a personal note i've actually um interaction with some white people and you know kept my distance uh but one of my family members is in a tragic arrangement and uh, just 
one in particular, one guy in particular, ex-drug addict method, just to show you how white people can land on their feet. He served 12 years in prison. Um, he was uh, living on my cousin's couch, who's also a white female. And um, just this week, he got a $5,000 tax return, a uh, new car, and a new job. And he actually just got that new job and hired another meth addict to uh, help him out as his assistant. So uh, just goes to show you they can land on their feet sometimes out of 10. We'll meet my wife. Hello, good night. Can be heard? Hello? Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Ah, uh, cool. Yeah. Um, I did not know about the, uh, the phone companies in prison that they are. Uh, they're billion-dollar companies. But what I really wanted to comment on was the uh, Young Turks. I feel white people have no right to tell black people how to protest, no matter what they're doing. And I thought what he was doing <laughs> was an act of racism. Um, I, you commented uh, later in the program about... Um, that 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 lady, uh, Kimberly King, is that her name? Kimberly Randall King. Yeah, yeah. And um, you were talking about how the system of white supremacy, you know, get gets gets you down. And I mean, that happened to me like a couple weeks back, and I'm not even incarcerated. Just going to work, just the day to day, can get you down. And um, that's all I got to say for now. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, uh, if you would like. Because I, I just think that's really important. Like, that's been uh, – I totally I totally agree. I totally agree. Every, that I was going to write. That was the position that I was was taking. Uh, I was uh, disappointed in the report that I wrote about all of this because I had, one, I have a deadline. Um, and, two, uh, Mr. Meehan, like, he radically shifted what I was going to – say and he has a lot more information this is just the kimberly randall king situation uh he has a lot more information about that than you know a lot of folks do i would imagine being the attorney uh and seeing as he just filed a lawsuit but um he was saying yeah i think you know i think this happened but i still think this is an act of white terrorism to just harass and molest people uh and then the one thing i will say is i did remember in all of this uh khalif browder i think enough folks should remember black male, uh, unjustly, in my view, unjustly uh, incarcerated for three years at Rikers in New York. He was never convicted of anything. He staunchly asserted the entire time that he had not stolen anything. He was uh, accused, arrested, detained for uh, stealing a backpack. But uh, he ultimately uh, is reported to have committed suicide and uh, is reported to have had uh, just a slew of mental health problems as a result of all of this and had uh, repeated uh, suicide uh, attempts, just that, everything about that. In fact, if you put those two things together, again, everything, all absolutely valid, absolutely valid. Everything, all the folks who take the position that, you know, they, they don't think that this is, is feasible and white people lie about all this, absolutely valid, beautiful, correct stance to take. Uh, I'm just saying with the Khalif Browder situation, if you take like the suicide and mental health issue, if you take that piece of information with the very first clip that we started with about how they are just... Bilking, that is a billion-dollar industry about these phones. 
I'm sure it's a whole lot of folks who cannot afford to do a whole lot of phone calls. And that leads to the mental health issues because they, and I mean, they do that deliberately. I said, I read uh, uh, Picking Cotton, the book, Black Male, who was falsely accused, falsely uh, convicted, excuse me, of raping two white women. And DNA evidence ultimately uh, excluded him, exonerated him, and he got compensation. But anyway, um, they purposely move you and put you so you're at a distance from your family so that they can disconnect you from people that you care about. And I mean, that's all of this is designed as, as, as an attack on black mental health, in my opinion. That should be definitely thought about. I, again, I just throw out Khalif Browder. We spent all that time talking about him. His name at least should maybe be brought up in all of this unless I'm greatly in error. And I do think you should connect because I'd be curious as to how much they talked about the phone calls that Sandra Bland made while she was detained. That's what he was talking about in that clip. I'd be curious as to how much those calls cost uh, that she made. And I will mute my line. If anybody who has not shared, feel free to chime in. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting um, what you were saying about the day-to-day uh, uh, stresses that uh, racism can cause. Because uh, when I was real young, my 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 father died of a, a massive heart attack um, from working in a, a, a sundown town, and uh, his his boss would always um, be putting him on different shifts all the time. He he was just constantly thrown on different shifts and I and I and I was very uh ignorant of racism at that time and I was you know saying when people would talk about, you know, they had they knew of a relative that had been hung or, you know, lynched or whatever and I would say, Well, my dad was never, you know, victim of racism. He just had a heart attack because he was very stressed out. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that that was because of racism and and my mother died of environmental cancer and for a long time I didn't know that that was um, a cause of racism uh, but um, now I know so yeah and even myself I'm, I'm 61 and um, I have adult kids and I feel like that you know I'm going down you know that road too I mean I don't have any 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 um, any health problems I get I get I get wellness exams every year, but I, even though I still feel like I'm just, I'm just slowly dying because of this what I have to deal with every day, and and just the stuff that 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 I have I, I read and the stuff I have to deal with and the stuff that, that my kids have to deal with on their jobs and when they come and tell me stuff like this, and everything. So I I understand how how, you know how this this day to day stuff can. It, it it just it it's it's it slowly erodes you, you know, and it 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 just slowly kills you, and um, that's all I want to say. Other folks with us that have not shared, feel free. 
Uh, your volume is a little low. If you could speak up. Can you hear me now? That is better. Um, yes, sir. Uh, greetings to that's the host, the listeners and callers. Um, just a few things I wanted to point out. Uh, I think that the mayor name was uh, Patrick Rushing, I think. Uh, there was a, a female that was maybe, I guess, defending him. Sound like that could have been a, a white person, and she used that, that phrase or a metaphor that uh, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. So I still don't understand what that even means. Um, like how can a bone be a racist, you know? And and it's like stuff like, well, this person, he can't be a racist. You know, he has black friends or he's, he has black associates. And that's like supposed to be some kind of justification to prove that he or she isn't one. So, in fact, that was also said about uh, Holt Hogan that Dennis Rodman, I think, was reported saying that he didn't have a racist bone in his body. And, you know, he's a victim and whatnot. But I just find that funny how that phrase is, is commonly used. But uh, I think uh, Hogan said, I am a racist. Uh, I found that interesting. Um, so, like, if I could ask a question to Gus, when when a white person says, uh, I am a racist in any kind of way, like, what? how would you respond to that? Like, would, would you, would he, would he or she be still considered a suspect, a racist suspect, or just like a racist? Or, uh, not in my book. In in, in my book, uh, they would be an admitted racist. I would just confirm, you know, what they said. If he says, you know, I guess I'm a racist. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Hogan, you, you said you are a racist. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. From that point forward, it would be admitted racist, Hulk Hogan. And uh, you were saying, we could continue on with the conversation, let him uh, finish up. But at that point, I would just be referencing an and admitted racist, admitted racist. Yes, because if he was employed by that company for all of these years, it's, it's like it, it brings me up uh, to think about Donald Sterling in the NBA. It's like a culture. It's a way of life, a way of living, a way of doing things for white people, and they listed in the segment, oh, well, Justin Bieber and Madonna and Michael Richards, Mel Gibson, all were white people. And I find that uh, exciting, too, that they they listed nothing but people who are classified as white. So that, that was on point for them to do that. And um, I'm also not surprised about it, but yeah, just uh, everyday normal activity for uh, uh, racist suspects, and that's pretty much uh, all I had. <laughs> On the, the Hulk Hogan thing, I love it uh, where he says, I am a real American. <laughs> like, I love it. That Whole this, words, right? Exactly, exactly. From this point forward, I hope that will be, you know, stitched in people's mind whenever they hear that. Like, yes, that's what it means. A real white person is supposed to be a racist. Uh, I also thought it was uh, interesting 
hearing the other people responding to what he said, like some of the other wrestlers. And even the WWE's apology, I thought, was really whack. Because, I mean, they, I had said, I think, last summer, there was like a report coming out every other week about wrestling and racism. Like, it was tons of them. Somebody got smacked because they said a racist joke. And somebody talked about this aspect of racism, and they're not getting compensated. I mean, it was just every other day, racism this and racism that, past wrestlers and current wrestlers and blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, that I felt that was the wackest part of it all for them to say that they've been hanging out with this dude making millions all around the world for 30 years, and you're telling me in all that time, like, nobody had it none, and I'm talking about the white people none of them had an inkling that oh yeah this guy is, is you know, a little racist uh, he doesn't want his daughter mud sharking it with any other I mean get out of here man y'all are hanging out on the plane and on yachts together and getting drunk and having all kind man please get out of here uh, in addition if I could have got my hands on it in a timely manner uh, Roddy Piper for folks who saw the film They Live, right? Classic, counter-racist film. Uh, Roddy Piper, who's also a wrestler, he was asked about all of this, and he said, oh, come on. I used to wear a kilt to the ring. Do you know people called me fag and little girl and tease me and throw stuff on me every day? And I said, uh, okay, that's, that's interesting. But back to this thing, <laughs> what do you have to say about this? He said, oh, come on. You all are going to sit here and talk all this nonsense about he said this and, okay, maybe maybe it's wrong, but should I have been called a fag? I mean, that's what they said to me. Should I have been called a fag? Should they, they threw urine on me. What about that? Who's going to do something? I mean, it was amazing. Like, it was about five minutes of him going on. He said, didn't he get all those children? How many times did he tell people to take their vitamins? say their prayers and grow up to be kind of strong and you're going to just try and throw him away. This is just disgraceful. <laughs> like, uh, it was incredible. If I could have got my hands on the audio, I probably would have pray, uh, played that as well because I thought that was another great example. White people, they will always come to the defense and aid of other white people and that's been on display as well. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. All right, this caller um, from the 712, and with the report about um, the president going to Kenya, it's just so important for them to get, you know, black people into homosexuality uh, and homosexual behaviors, and um, that's just how I feel about it because they're not – they just did a deal with the so-called Middle East people, and they weren't really concerned about, you know, if they were accepting the homosexualities, and, and they know they're not. And, you know, Asian countries, they don't, you know, verify, are you all, all right with the homosexuals? You're not against them or anything. And then for them to really make the focus on Kenya, I don't know, or any African country, is it because they have specific laws prohibiting homosexuality? Um, I just, it's, it's obvious racism um, really geared towards the, the black people on that homosexuality, causing more, trying to cause more confusion. Um, I just wanted to speak on that for a minute. 
listeners in the Iowa area. I didn't even know we had listeners there. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was important too because that came up before. I think when he he had a trip before. I think he might have been Uganda or one of the. I don't remember. You have to forgive. I don't remember the country, but this has come before when he was doing trips and he was going heavily. I think 2013 he was going same thing. He was pushing the uh, gay rights thing and and some of the uh, the quote unquote African nations uh, said very bluntly like you know. We are not interested. We do not share your view, and we are not interested in being lectured on this topic. But I think that's important, and I think someone had mentioned on the program before that there are a lot of other people on this planet uh, who do not have melanin or don't have as much melanin as the folks on the continent who also are not in support of what they call gay marriage and lesbianism and all that, and they don't have nearly the same aggression and finger wagging and going and tell them you got to change this and all that, that it seems to be, as you just say, that a, a unique focus on uh, black people uh, stateside and internationally uh, to accept and really scold them and get on them if it seems like they're not going along with this program. Yes, sir. I'm pretty sure that was 2013, though, when he went to the continent before, and it was kind of the same thing. I think we played a similar uh, clip where this this same topic uh, became an issue, him going to propagandize this and there being uh, explicit resistance uh, by black folks on the continent. Uh, any any other folks? Anybody we haven't heard from? We got everybody. Everybody that has a hand up so far has been able to uh, share. Make sure we're not missing anybody. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, first off, um, I'm, I'm glad you're on vacation. <laughs> I'm glad we're still having this. Um, I'd just like to say that um, the one mom who called in and was talking about that um, she didn't realize that her family was being subjected to racism to the point of their um, death. Um, I just would like to say that um, I hope that you encourage your adult children to read Nelly Fuller's book and to talk with them about racism, white supremacy, and for you guys to come together as a family um, to talk about strategies so um, you can lessen the effect of what white racism, white supremacy does, and also that um, you guys don't cause more stress to each other because we know that um, that um, the, the system um, um, somehow allows people to be some stressed out that they fight amongst themselves where they should be helping each other. And I... Um, you know, that's what I wanted to say. And it's just, um, you know, this is business as usual. And so what we do have to do, do is we have to talk about how how is it that we counter it, you know. Because, I mean, we still have to analyze what happens, what white people do to us and other non-black people. So we have to focus on not doing anything more. Now, if somebody does something wrong, you know, you know, like, um, you know, if they do something, there's nothing you can do about that. Like, you know, but don't cause anybody more stress than 
then, then we, you know, just try not to. I mean, I don't know what else to say, but, um, ma'am, you, you sound very, very sad, and I hope that you take very good care of your health, and that's one thing that you, we can do, we can put in our hands, is to learn about what health uh, items we should do, like more water and things like that, and do it. And um, I'll mute myself. Thank you. we get everybody? Everybody who had a hand up, uh, been able to share? I assume they are taking care. If folks have other thoughts they would like to share, feel free. If you are listening and have a thought you would like to share, number again, 760-569-7676, and the code is 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate we have about 20 minutes before we get to workplace racism so please do not lollygag get your hand up if you have uh, commentary you would like to share um did anybody see anything relative to the uh, conference that they're having in Ohio, the Black Lives Matter conference? It's supposed to be like 800 people there. Has anybody followed that? Anybody go? <laughs> anybody attend that? I just heard about that tonight on the program. I didn't even know about it. Oh, okay. Um, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Uh, greetings, everyone. This is uh, Puff. Uh, got a question. Um, remember how you were talking about last week, the white woman that was talking about, like, what broadcast is that in? I tried to look for that this week. I didn't. I wasn't listening to it, but... She said something about a white woman was on and she kept evading the issues or something. Something you were talking about last week. But I tried to look for that. Like, what what broadcast is that in? It's probably the one that's titled uh, Dylan Roof is White Like Me, uh, which I think was like last Monday, uh, which would be the 13th, July 13th. But it's the one I think the one that you're talking about is Dylan. Uh, Dylan Roof is white like me uh, with Lori Essick, uh, the white woman who uh, gave a memorable performance. Yeah, that's what that's what I was trying to find, and I didn't listen to that broadcast, and so I was trying to find it about a woman. But okay, it's in the Dylan Roof situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I know. I, I was I was very disappointed a few weeks ago um, <laughs> about the well. On a, just on another subject, I live in uh, 
I live in Mississippi now, and so I was looking at the news a few weeks ago, and uh, the students in, in, uh, at Jackson State held a protest. But, you know, you know about the people that's getting stopped and, you know, the police and everything. It's like they're mad at the police, but it's like the – see, uh, this is an 80% black city, so all the police officers are black, the district attorney is black, the – Police chief is black. The mayor is black. It's like everybody is is black and of color. The sheriff is black. Ohio County is black. Every everyone in offices and and the city council is black, all except for one person. Uh, you know, and everything. And so that was very disappointed in the students of Jackson State. I just I just was held aside. One one of the uh, the thing is, okay, just like Mr. Fuller says, you can't approach people, you can't approach police officers in that way. If you're told to halt, then you halt. If you're told to stop, then you stop. And I'm not saying, by that I'm not saying, you know, what happened to Ms. Bland was her fault in any way or anything. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying about that uh, on Okay, what happened is, okay, on campus a few weeks ago, a student, the the cafeteria closes at 7 o'clock, and this boy was in, he was in a band practice, so his something was late, but he was late getting there, getting his food, so he wanted to get there under the door, but they had already closed the door. And so uh, what happened, the man, you know, told him to leave. Does cafeteria, but he didn't leave. He just kept staying there, and so it escalated into an incident where campus police were called, and they escorted him off the premises. And so the next day, the students held a sit-in in the cafeteria about about the uh, police officer, and, and then they were talking about Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff, and I was just... I just shook my head a little bit. I was kind of disappointed in that. Um, go ahead. I'll, I'll mute my line. I'll, I'll, I'll at some point get over my disappointment, but, you know, when I went to Jackson State, we protested about the Ayers case, something that really, you know, matter. It's just, it's just, just the conflation and the whole racial disidentity and Raven Simone talking about, Victim of racism, Raven Simone talking about she's an American, she's not an African American. It just the young generation is just it just I just give a sad disappointment there, and and I'm gonna get over it. I'll mute. Go ahead, whatever. Go ahead, people. Uh, go ahead. Hello? Go. Oh, I'll, I'll wait. Are you sure? Yes, ma'am. You can go ahead. Oh, I just want to, just for a second, I, I <clears throat> greetings to everybody. I'm calling from Ohio, and I'm sorry I don't have any information on the 800 activists um, in the Black Lives Matter meeting here. I, I honestly have, I, I'm not hooked to social media, so, um, I'm sorry. I I, don't, I I will try to find out, 
But anyway, the reason why I called was I'm concerned about the sister that called in who said she was 61 and, um, and you know, was under under pressure because of racism and the racism that her family is going through. And I, you know, just want to reach out to her and say, stay strong, sister. Um, uh, we're all kind of going through that. We, you know, it's, it's often we don't have people to talk to about it or people that really understands. Uh, I think um, the cows really does understand. So I hope that you will stay in touch. And um, if you need support, to please let Gus and the listeners know. And uh, that's all I want to say. Appreciate the effort. Hello? Ma'am, we can hear you. We can hear you. Go ahead, ma'am. No, I just pull up. I thought the line dropped. I just want to make sure the line didn't drop. Go ahead. Oh. I thought there was. I thought there were two people that were trying to speak at the same time. The female call to share. Yeah, I was just uh, curious if anybody heard like the uh, media basically uh, hopping on Bernie Sanders because he's a socialist. Because I remember when Obama was running for his presidency, it was a big hoopla about him being a socialist, even though I never heard him say he was a socialist. They had in the Washington Post yesterday, uh, is Bernie Sanders socialist enough? I think that was was in the Washington Post. I'll double check to make sure I didn't. I'm not losing my mind. Enough for uh, that was what they were suggesting, I think. I just wanted to say, you know, uh, I think a caller was saying something about, you know, reading about Neely Fuller and stuff like that. And me. I know about Neil Fuller, I know about all these people, but sometimes it feels like even though you know that stuff, it doesn't help you. You know, it's like, <laughs> damn if you do, damn if you don't. If you're ignorant about racism, it hurts. If you're not ignorant about racism, it still hurts. So sometimes you feel like <laughs> you really don't know what to do. And it's true that, you know, sometimes you really have no one to talk to. And that, that alone can take a toll on you also. And I think sometimes you should just, like, <laughs> reach out. But I did. I, I, I reached out to a stranger. I was so down. I was, like, just – and it, it, it got to a point where I basically, like, just just went on, on a tirade at work, just cursing at work because I was so, like, wound up. You know, sometimes you need someone to talk to. You know I mean? Even the person 
doesn't agree with your views or even understand what racism is just to get stuff off your chest. And that, that's all I got to say. That's part of the purpose of experiences. Am I being? Oh, okay. Make sure I'm being heard. Yeah, that was that's one of the the reasons that we have this program uh, is to offer folks that platform so that people can share uh, their views, problems, <clears throat> and that they don't have that. Uh, and just quickly, even the week that I've been uh, on vacation. A person was saying that they had went to, I guess it was like a spoken word type event uh, here in Washington State, and it was a black girl, young black girl, like even under 15. Uh, but she was at this. Uh, right on. So I'm here. The, uh, I am here. I'm just meeting my line because my story got disrupted. <laughs> you know, anybody else have things they want to share? Because we do only have about seven minutes before we get to workplace racism. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Peace to everybody. Uh, you know, appreciate the opportunity to just, you know, share some views on the recent events. You know, I kind of took a break from everything to practice the month of Ramadan in the midst of all the chaos. And, you know, since, since it's over now and I'm just, you know, getting back to all of the news stories and all this, you know, I really didn't know anything about uh, the Sandra Bland incident. But when I heard about it, you know, the expressions of racism and white supremacy were obvious and present. And, you know, it's just, you know, I remember hearing Francis Cress Wells and saying, you know, these events that keep happening, one, after the other are not just, you know, coincidences, things like that. And, you know, I just, you know, I'm starting to look at this oppression as, you know, something that the people can take and overcome, you know, dealing with those nine areas and religion is one of the areas. And recently we had, uh, a racist white supremacist terrorist, sophisticated terrorist go and, you know, assassinate people inside of a church, you know, a Christian church. And I felt like, you know, that was another sign that's clearly visible to, you know, non-white people or black people about, you know, the Christian black codes and things like that that caused that to happen and that, you know, we may need to look at, you know, Islam to be at a state of peace for some of the regular people, you know, so that the oppression can be uplifted up off of them because, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's too much to bear as it, as it is, you know, and a lot of the people are already uh, informed about the information 
And so, you know, those are tools for maximum justice, I think, that can be used in the approach to do maximum justice is the Quran, because that's what the Quran teaches is maximum justice, reciprocity. So, you know, I just wanted to add that in the midst of all, you know, the stuff that's going on to add to that area in which racism and white supremacy functions and just throw a viewpoint out on that, speak about the sophisticated terrorist system of racism and white supremacists. It's not the normal terrorist system that they're talking about, about these low-budget terrorist groups that are trying to accomplish what the racist white supremacists in some likes have already accomplished. So I consider them a sophisticated terrorist group. And, uh, you know, about the protests in Jackson State, you know, I used to go there too. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I'm not saying that that's a good effort towards, you know, I don't criticize it, but, you know, it could have been a lot better. And I heard that they went down there shooting one time at Jackson State, too. So, I mean, it's just over and over oppression. And uh, I feel like Ms. Bland was a victim of threat, direction, coercion. She was under threat, direction, coercion from being a United, a so-called United States citizen. She was under threat, direction, coercion for having a driver's license. She was under threat, direction, coercion for having a car. She was under threat, direction, coercion for trying to have some fake job. So it was a lot of things involved. And so in order for these oppressions to be lifted off of regular people, they have to embrace God, they have to embrace Allah, they have to embrace their creator and go from there. Appreciate the time. You know, that's all I want to say. We have about two minutes left. Anybody else have uh, anything they want to get in before we get to workplace racism? Hi, this is caller from 712 again. I didn't want to um, minimize what the female caller was saying about um, her and her family going through uh, difficult times here with this uh, with this this um, evil uh, racism, white supremacy. Um, I just want to let you know that I I want to send out positive energy to you and your family and everybody on the line. Um, we're all dealing with it. And uh, also, uh, Mr. Gus, I'm thinking about starting to write about what happened to the black farmers um, while we're reading um, this Bill Ben Tillman, the reconstruction of white supremacy. It just was sparking in my mind about starting to write about what happened to the black farmers and um i was um about the wheat money book i remember hearing something in the archives about this book called the wheat money is there is there any references to black farmers in that book uh well let's see number one for the record so i'm being put on the spot about a book i read a month a year ago uh off top do i remember anything about black farmers She's Tracy's talking about Crystal Tyler's book. Um, in my opinion, a uh, very skilled race soldier. But she was on twice. Uh, she, her book, The Wheat Money. She talks about how she's married to a black male crack addict. So she says um, 
she traces their fam family lineages and she traces her family, <clears throat> this land that they owned uh, here in Washington State, no less, uh, and how she ended up growing up in Texas. Um, it traces his family uh, and all the difficulties that her black husband, uh, all the difficulties that his family had and how he ended up being in, I think they met in uh, Colorado, um, where they eventually met. Anyway, uh, off top, I'm not remembering anything. Well, since we can't anybody, oh, well, since we can't hear Gus, I just like to just reverberate. Um, let us not cause stress to each other. Um, if somebody does something wrong, you know, and if it's like they break the laws, nothing we can do about that. Or if they do something immoral, nothing we can do about that. But we can still try to minimize the damage that it does to ourselves and financially and health-wise. Let's take care of each other, you know, as best we can so we can minimize the terrible impact racism and white supremacy has on us all and that we can go forward and uh, make sure that we are establishing deep roots for the next generation so they can stand up strong and straight. I want, are we the only one, ones on the line then? or I guess. Oh. How, who else is on the line? I'm present. I'm present. So we have three that's on the line. Do we have any more that's on the line? Yes, on the line. Hear me. We can't hear you, sir. We're trying, attempting to hear you. We cannot hear you. Hold on. Okay, this is Frank from Black Hollywood again. Um, I like to share my workplace racism. All right. Yeah, they go right ahead. Yeah. Um, actually, working for this, we've been telling y'all about some of the hustle jobs I've had to, to you know, have a career in entertainment. So I started doing some of these gig jobs, you know, like Lyft and Uber, and um, worked for one in particular that is a delivery service. And just here recently, um, I noticed trend, and I had always noticed this trend, that uh, certain, I guess, uh, white people were promoted um, up from the, the regular ranks. The regular ranks were drivers and in-store shoppers, and um, it seemed like whenever time for a promotion came, there was somebody's friend that was coming in town, and, you know, it's a buddy that I went to college with, and welcome him to the team. He comes from Vanderbilt University, and then... Um, it's gone. It's devolved into uh, the smaller job that's being built because these companies are now in trouble because they've been classifying most of their employees as independent contractors. Now it goes into the labor standard. And, you know, if you're doing the work of an employee, you could be entitled to some of the benefits of an employee. Well, in order to counteract that, they started moving some people up. And guess who those people that they're moving up? All of the white people. They were black. It's just really unique. And uh, I thought that, you know, you all might get a kick out of that. Um, But, I mean, these people are entitled to 
benefits above and beyond the independent contractors because now they're employees. So now they're guaranteed uh, salaries, um, guaranteed hourly compensation, uh, still entitled to tips in some cases. And now they're also the driver's um, managers, so supervisory positions now. So now all the black people and Hispanic people who are drivers are now under the thumb of some of these people who you know, thought they had control anyway. Um, another disturbing thing I noticed is that now um, there was a privacy notice that was put out that says um, that they're, once you have their app on your phone, and now they have access to your browser, uh, your browser history, they have the right to insert cookies to monitor your uh, page viewing during the shift, and I think even outside of the shift. It's just, you know, once again, we're being cornered uh, in these, these slave plantations so that all our privacy is now being funneled into, you know, into a control, so thus causing more stress and thus putting us in the position of some of our sisters like Sandra Bland and uh, Kim Randall King. Um, so unfortunately, that's the state we're in in the system of white supremacy, but that's what we got. I mean, my line. Well. If nobody else wanted to come in, I wanted to say that um, with regards to that, I, I feel like even though we don't, at my job, we don't have anything specific telling us, even telling us that they're monitoring us. Um, when we are on our home computer and we've linked to the company, but I'm to the point where I really do want to um, have like two separate things going, like two separate systems where one is like a, you know, I understand that these people are monitoring me, you know, you know, computer. And then another one I set up where, you know, I'm, I'm just a little bit more freer. And um, I think that's something that we should consider, at least I'm considering. And, um, you know, that's, you know we, um, there's nothing that I know that we can do except, I guess, maybe learn about technology and see if there's ways that we can minimize their effect. But I don't know enough about technology, and I, would, I guess, have to take a class. Um, because, yeah. I'll mute myself. Sir, you're pretty low. I can't hear you. Yeah. I didn't hear what did you say? I said I was uh, yeah, thinking about a whole other phone just to, you know, work on that job. But, you know, with them not paying any expenses as is, like, it seems like kind of productive for me to spend more money on another phone. Uh, you know, the, the draw was that you could use your own phone and, you know, create an income, you know. <laughs> so it was that idea. But, um, Anybody else can share as well. Yeah, I'd like to share. I'll go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, um, I work in like a a factory setting, 
uh, where I um, I test the equipment that this company produces. And um, this factory has a, a production supervisor. She supervises, you know, <laughs> the people who produces the goods. And what's been happening is she is a white person. She makes a lot of mistakes. And what happens is when she makes mistakes, somehow I get blamed for the mistakes or I come in and I have to clean up her mistakes. And what I want to know from you guys, if you could help me out, is <laughs> what should my response be when I'm, I'm getting, like, dumped with, 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 um, with her job? when she's the one that's constantly making mistakes. Like, is it something that I should, like, bring to my manager? Should I bring it to, to his attention, or should I just let it leave it alone? Is but there any way for you to... Helping me, because when I leave it alone, I get upset, because I'm like, yo, it's your, it's your job. Why am I doing this? And everybody, everybody, like, everybody knows that she messes up, but nobody's saying it. And... I'm in these meetings, she messes up, I'm sitting down, you know, and this man's looking at me like, why did, he says to me, oh, I have to stop all the mistakes that, 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 that's, been, that, that, that's happening. I have to stop all these mistakes. He wants me to be quality. He wants me to do like, like <laughs> he wants me to wear like 10 hats. So I'm not sure, like, you know, how I should deal with that. I'll meet myself. Might I suggest you um, stepping back and allowing, you know, minimizing contact, you know, where your jobs overlap, uh, still completing your duties, but making it clear on what you're completing and documenting that, um, as well as, you know, documenting any time you think she's slacking off. You know, that would be my suggestion. But it's like uh, my boss, like he puts me in charge of monitoring her, monitoring her, but yet still I can't, I can't say anything when when she's doing something like incorrect. And she's a person where she has this like she has a don't care attitude. So she does something, and you're like, okay, you know, you mess up right here. She's like, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. That's her attitude, and everybody knows that's her attitude. So my, my, my boss actually puts me so I, I have to interact with her. Yeah. Well, if it's unavoidable in that way, um, is there a way to allow her to publicly, you know, show her lack of skill? I mean, is there a way for you to allow her to fall in her face? I know as victims sometimes we overcompensate and we try to you know, fix everything, you know, being efficient in our jobs, you know. Is there any way that you can back out of mm-hmm. her her job? Let me give you an example. She does shipping too, all right? So she will ship something, and my job is to check what she ships, make sure it's the right part, and it's going to the right place, and it's the right, the right number of parts, right? So she did something where it was the wrong address, right? So I go to her. My boss is there, which is also her boss, 
I go to her, I'm like, you know, you know, this is incorrect, you know, it has to be changed. And she goes, oh, I'm just going to cross it off with a pen. And he says to her, you know, that's, that's, inco- that's, that's incorrect. She said, oh, it doesn't matter, who cares? And that was that. So it's like, as I, like I'm saying, it's like it's not, it's not <laughs> a secret that she's inept. It's just that they want to throw the blame on me and another black guy. But yeah, um, anybody want to share? I'll, I'll, I'll meet myself. I, I, I wanted to say that um, uh, that they like to put you in that, that kind of place. Um, just make sure that, because um, I was just placed in that place myself, and just make sure that you're not. Um, this is going to sound funny what I'm going to say, but just you have to listen to the whole thing. Make sure that you don't, um, you know, uh, make. Because remember, we are in a system of white supremacy, period. Make sure that she doesn't feel threatened by you um, um, overdoing, you know, over, over, um, overlooking her work. Make sure that her work is correct. And things that you have to do, just make sure it's not invasive. Um, when you go in every day, pray um, that, that God gives you wisdom and, and, and gives you the words to say and not and hold your tongue not to say it. That's one of the prayers you do in, in first thing in the morning. Second thing, make sure that whatever they request of you, you do. But the most important thing, document it. Document is their, their request. So uh, what I would like to do is I used to like send emails, just quick, I mean quick emails according to our conversation you would like me to do blah, 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 you would like me to, and then state, state what it is that you want to do. And keep those emails, keep those, you know, print out those emails too so you can keep track of them. And, um, and then do your job with a smile and just, you know, if she says she, she doesn't care, you know, you, you know, if, if, you know, if, if, if you think it's a, a thing for you to do to make, make that a note and send that to the supervisor that she continuously said that she doesn't care, you know, she said it just today or something to that effect, just something short and, and, and not like I don't want to do it or anything like that, that you're more than happy to assist her because we're just trying to keep our job. And they're going to do this to us because they know their job, their job under white supremacy, in my opinion, I could be wrong, is that they are make sure that their people can maintain a salary, period. And if you want to maintain a salary and you're not white, that you're going to have to do extra. And that's under racism and white So that's just a given because we don't own enough of our own companies. And so just go in and, 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 and do your job. Make sure you document everything or make sure that everybody understands it's not a problem. Don't give her. Now, what happens is they'll, they'll, they'll try and um, say that you're doing something, you know, that you're overstepping your bounds and you're not supervising all this other kind of stuff. But this lady is going to give you a problem down the line. So make sure you de- um, document, you know, I'm not overstepping my bounds. I was asked to do this according to, here's my emails who are, are, that are back up. And um, I'm, I'm just simply trying to, you know, I, I like my job. I'm trying to do my job as best as I possibly can, that kind of thing. But don't get into the trap of fighting with her or giving her any reason to complain against you because they will, under the system of white supremacy, fire you and keep her. And so, you know, um, just, um, and then 
Make sure that you are um, reading your policy guidelines at work and understand what the policies and things like that are. Um, and make sure that you're following them, and every time that they don't, make sure you're documenting. And uh, I'll I'll mute my line. Yeah, I, I would that. like this. I'll oh, go ahead, brother. Go ahead. Oh, I'll just very quick. Um, and just also research if there's any mechanism uh, to report to a superior yeah, above your direct superior, um, because you know, as Neely Fuller says, you know, white people don't get fired; they get reassigned. Hopefully, you could potentially push her to being reassigned because best believe they're actually documenting things on you every time that they have uh, some type of negative um, negative response to her work or, you know, what, what's viewed as your work. So um, I'd say strike first, you know, we're at war. I would like to say that, you know, you could probably change your perception about the whole thing and just write it off as a charity and just say, you know, you know, this person, you know, if they mess up, you, you get you get excited that they mess up. You get happy that they messed up. And then, you know, you, you write that off as a charity because you're doing what you're supposed to do and, regardless, it's going to show back up that she ain't doing something she ain't supposed to be doing, and you play your part as far as it's not getting to you, and, you know, it's not going to affect your life, it's not going to affect your existence in your day, and you just doing your job, and if, if, if she making the day go longer, then she making the day go longer, you know. So, you know, you don't have to be, uh, upset about it, you know, you can just write that off as her being lowly or whatever, and then, you know, as a charity to her, you didn't go off on her, you didn't do, you know, you just let her be because she probably going to quit in two or three weeks. Anything could happen to her, anything. She'll probably get fired, she'll get exposed, and then you will get to sit back and, uh, you know, know that you had the upper hand the whole time. No, Gus said he wanted to have hands off for his vacation, but I don't think this is what he meant. <laughs> exactly. Gus, are you with us? Anybody still online? I don't have anything, let's call it from the 712, I don't have anything on workplace racism right now as I started a new job, um, but I left I left my, uh, my old job because um, some, you know, classified white person says um, she was explaining something to the person next to her and she said, she kept saying nigga. And I said, well, you know, because I was leaving out for break, and I was like, you know, what, what's what's going on over here? And she said, oh yeah, uh, my dog, my dog's name nigga. And I said, well, that's interesting. So I addressed it with the um, with the managers, and you know, really, it wasn't nothing really done. 
what the feedback that I got was she was such a good worker to where it wasn't really nothing that they was going to do. You know, she was producing numbers. She was doing everything that she needed to do. So what I got from that is at, at that particular job, you can say whatever you want to say as long as you, you produce and, and have the numbers, um, you know, for the company. But that was my last job, and then I had to get up out of there because they were doing too much. And so I have a new job, and unfortunately I'm sure I'll be calling in with work, workplace racism on the new job. Um, I'll mute my line. Uh, what part of the country are you in where they, somebody's got the dog named nigger? In Iowa. In Iowa, yeah. yeah Black husband hope. also, they thought that was, um, you know, that that was important for for me to know, you know. Well, she does have a black husband, so, <clears throat> yeah. Tragic arrangements. Yeah. Anybody else have anything else to share? For workplace racism? We, we didn't get Gus back on then, or? I'm not sure. He might be off. Oh, I see. Okay. Might be um, in an area where he doesn't have service. Oh, but, okay. um, there was another moment that I had on the same job. This is Frank from Black Hollywood again. Um, this week I had an order that came in for a customer that was, um, I found out later, was a problem customer. Uh, he ordered, you know, a lot of stuff, and um, I had just picked up a shift um, within an hour of, you know, the time I, I saw it. So I have a commute of over an hour. So, you know, logically I wanted to go ahead and um, go somewhere close to my house, which is, you know, well within my my rights. Um, I went to the location, did the shopping, um, was headed en route to um, the gentleman. And uh, along with that privacy thing, they had just implemented a GPS feature where they could see where I was at every given moment. <laughs> The customer, no less. Not just the company, but the customer. So, you know, it's just getting more and more insecure at this job. But uh, he told me I was too far away and that he was going to cancel his order. Um, he called me repeatedly. I think I probably got, you know, 20 text messages and calls in a, you know, 30-minute period. And um, when I finally got a hold of him, and actually was coming to his house. Uh, he said he wanted the order, but that he had already canceled it, which means he wanted the order for free. Um, I contacted my supervisors who were in San Francisco, and uh, they instructed me not to uh, leave the groceries to go ahead and take them back to um, back to the store. So I took them back to the store, and I looked on my uh, report, because they have a running report of how you're doing, and uh, they use it to, you know, determine if you get a promotion or if you get, um, you know, a better schedule. And uh, I had a negative entry on that order that they told me to return as 
the entry said uh, did not deliver to customer. And he complained that the shopper was at the wrong store. So, so even by following instructions, sometimes you realize that, um, you know, they're going to, if they want to give you a negative mark, they're going to give you a negative mark, especially when they're changing the system to, uh, to reward some of the people who they deem as more important in the company. So <laughs> no promotion for me, even though up until that point I had no real major incidents. Uh, but, you know, the week that they announced that, now I've got a major incident. So, you know, once again, we're, you know, we're faced with a lot of stress and, you know, it's usually tied to money in the black community. And, um, you know, that, that contributes to all these, these, these murders, these murders under the system, under the name of the system of white supremacy. Let's just call it that a murder under the name of the system of white supremacy. I mute my line. Hello? I can hear you. Yeah, we can hear you. So I was going, I can be heard, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes. So what you're talking about, the experiences that, in particular, the last gentleman had, I'm well familiar and well acquainted with that type of move on the chessboard, if you will. And I would say that my response is that you just you just hang tough. You hang tough. No matter what move they make, you have to be ready with if you're not ready, you get ready as fast as you can with a counter move, but it's not about getting upset. It's not about losing your, your um, and it doesn't sound like you did, but this is a general comment. And I found that since I wasn't going to change them, that I had to change me. That was the most important move on the chessboard that I could have made. I'm grateful that uh, the Creator inspired me in that direction. What I, one thing I would suggest for the entire group, and I continue to do myself, is continue to upgrade, enhance your skills, and always find that to be a priority because you never know. It's a B plan, and always <clears throat> being able to you know, take a class, um, I know we we don't have all the time we would like, but we're, we're in the same place in that regard. But continue to upgrade your skills. Uh, take a math class. Um, um, always be about being proactive on your own behalf, especially in the system. And, uh, you know, you hang tough and be the best that you can be, that the Creator has created you to be. And that's my comment. What types of classes would you suggest 
Um, I do have an advanced degree. I have a master's, but it's in a, a art field. Um, but, you know, I'm open to any suggestions. What are, you know, in-demand classes that would enhance, I guess. Well, technology is, uh, you can't go wrong and with technology. Just kind of what you like and can excel at based on you do better with what you like, but in terms of just being practical, a good technology class, I mean, we all have advanced degrees, that is not what moves me forward. It's, it, in other words, we know <laughs> that's not all there is to that they consider uh, is your degrees or my degrees. So, you have to take counsel with yourself and analyze what you think you can do because nobody can answer that for you. But I would say just as a general comment that technology is a good area to at least evaluate for yourself. And that's my comment. Anyone else got anything to share for workplace racism? Okay. Can I, can I go? Oh, go ahead. Oh, we can hear you. We can hear oh, you. Oh, yeah. I was going to piggyback off that lady and said that um, certifications, too, are a good way to uh, expand your skill set and, like, uh, trade, like, plumbing and stuff like that so you can always do something for yourself on the side. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I have a workplace racism incident that just happened to me this past Friday. Um, just started a new job, roughly been there for about a month. And I've had a couple of minor incidences. Uh, one incident in the first week, the second one with the same person that uh, I'm going I'm to tell a story about. Um, a small incident happened with her before. But this one I have documentation, um, so I'm going to just explain what happened. Uh, I work in an insurance company, so I take, deal with uh, calls from members um, in terms of uh, asking questions about different claims and billing issues. And I had a lady call in, uh, refused to identify herself or give me any information to assist her with the account. She just demanded to speak to a specific supervisor. So me being fairly new on the phone, ultimately, I ended up asking for assistance. Does anyone know where she was? Because that supervisor I found out was in a meeting. Actually, there were a bunch of them that were in the meeting, so there wasn't anyone really available for me to get to handle the call. So we have a little chat room that everyone can chime in to get assistance um, from anybody in the company who happens to be in that, that main chat room. So I chatted and asked if um, anyone uh, knew where she was, if there was anyone available to take the call. So the person, the manager of our department, uh, she actually uh, reaches out to me in the chat room and says, oh, you really shouldn't do that. Um, essentially, that's just the wrong way to handle the call. So she chastises me or attempts to in in the chat room. So from there I say, well, she has no idea what all the attempts that I made to try and get assistance before I went into the chat room, which is something that everybody does. So I put myself in that position by going into the chat room and then as a result, this is what happened. So I didn't get to actually say anything because she wasn't on the floor. She was also in the meeting as well. So when she finally does hit the floor, 
she she avoids me like the plague and goes back to her desk and sits down. So I said, so I said to uh, one of my coworkers, I said, I can't believe she's going to write this kind of information in the chat room. And I said, first of all, I'm older than she is, so I'll be damned if I have her disrespect me like that in, in the chat room. So she actually pulls me to the side and says, oh, she's like that. You know, she does this all the time. Um, she'll smile in your face, and then, you know, she'll do something crazy to you. And then, you know, the next time she sees you, she'll act like nothing happened. I said, okay, because it's similar to, in my mind, I thought it's similar to something I experienced before. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take a snapshot of that chat room. I have it actually actually live on my computer when I go back to work, and I'll just actually document everything. And from this point forward, I'll be keeping a running tally of what's going on. So I'm sure I'll be telling you another word. So this is a story at some point in the future. Thank you very much. I'll leave my life. That's a good use of uh, technology. Anybody else uh, want to share for workplace racism? Racism. Also, make sure you do that because um, you know if anything did happen and you lost your job, I had a friend that lost all his emails on his company company computer. Um, uh, just as soon as he lost his job. So make sure you document those things. Anyone else like to share for workplace racism? Would anyone like to do the prayer? I would like to do the prayer. Go right ahead. Creator, be your firstborn. Thank you for everything that you've given us, including the challenges of racism. Because you have equipped us so we know that we will prevail so long as we understand that you are with us and you're guiding us, but we have to do our part. Help us to do our part in loving each other, respecting each other, and formulating plans to minimize the effects of racism and white supremacy. Help us bring justice to this world. We ask you, Father, in the name of your son, amen. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)